listening to the Darkest Hour podcast, the show that performs a loving autopsy on horror films of the past and present. Right now, every night is Halloween, and every pod is covering an entry in the classic film franchise. Tonight, we return to Haddonfield for Halloween Resurrection, the 2002 film that killed the original series, at least until 2018. I'm John Evans, and joining me as always is screenwriter Vikram Wheat. Tonight we have a special guest with us as well, our friend and noted horror enthusiast Rich Eckersley. Rich actually works in reality TV, so that makes him kind of a great fit for tonight's movie and its weird little uh, vaguely Big Brother-inspired series, uh, Dangertainment. How you doing tonight, yeah, Rich? Big Brother on a very small budget. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm doing. I'm doing excellent. Thanks for having me on. So glad you could join us, man. I mean, we've we've talked uh, about horror movies so often at barbecues and, and events and things at Vic's house. It's it's great to finally do this with microphones and have you on. Yeah, I've always thought when you have talking at a barbecue that the only thing that make it feel more natural is a bunch of microphones and doing it over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Nothing more natural than this. And how are you tonight, Vic? How you doing, buddy? I'm I'm doing very well. Uh, Rich, I just want to say it, it really means a lot to me knowing that you you have listened to the podcast and still agreed to be on it. We we, we like that. So, uh, and I thought I watching it again tonight. I was like, oh God, Rich really is the perfect guest for this. And it's just like dumb luck. Uh, we'll get into it when we when we when we talk about our encounters with this movie. But uh, boy, it really did just work out very well. Vic, of course, is referring to his last watch, which you were probably watching it on your iPhone on the toilet. Were you not, Vic? <laughs> uh, it's a it's a Galaxy S nine, John. <laughs> it's like being in the theater, John. <laughs> <laughs> and and I and I. I was once again uh, in my car, giving it a second watch on my on my way home tonight, uh, which which was not safe. But taking notes while driving was was even less safe. So I, I would uh, just hate to get the the call where it's like, uh, well, yeah, Vic went off that canyon road. Apparently, the TV was playing some kind of horror movie in his car. <laughs> <laughs> I like the conversation that goes. It was a, it was a Halloween movie. Was it the first Halloween movie? No, it was. It was Halloween Resurrection. <laughs> oh God! How many how many people did he take with him? It was a school bus of, of children. What a noble sacrifice! Yeah, no noble sacrifice they made so that Vic could talk about Buster Rhymes' performance. Yes, if there was going to be one movie that you would careen off a cliff watching, uh, this would be the film. <laughs> <laughs> That's not true. I, I if I had been watching Halloween Six, I. I probably would have considered steering into oncoming traffic. So <laughs> let's not beat around the bush here. Um, Vic, you mentioned watching it for at least the second time. Now walk us through your experience with this film going back to uh, 2002 or whenever you first encountered it. I don't think I saw this in the movie theater. I probably got it on video and watched it and I have it. It sort of fills the same sort of pleasantly competent aura that Halloween H2O fills. It's interesting to me that this genre breaks down into these kind of these kind of groupings where the first two movies sort of fit together and then the third movie is this weird outlier and then four and five sort of fit together and then six is this deplorable outlier and then this is seven and eight and these two movies are of a piece and they 
tonally they sort of fit together. There's a weird meta Kevin Williamson vibe to them. It's a pleasant watch. I mean, again, it's I think it's I think it's a little below H2O. Uh, John, I know you're going to disagree with me on that, but it's not far below. It still it still fits that same that same mold. And then when it came time to do this podcast, Rich and I had the experience. Rich is the the proud uh, father of a new young baby. And his wife was working late and my wife was out of town. And so we had a dad's night and we got all the kids to sleep and we watched uh, almost all of this movie together. And like I said, it was just a happy coincidence that Rich and I were able to get together. And this was the movie that we were on. And I was like, well, look, like I, you know, we're together. We like horror movies. And, you know, I mean, normally I would have said, let's watch, you know, Hereditary or uh you know something, some something with uh, a little more, a little more gravitas. Maybe the ritual, which I know we started talking about on text messages and stuff. And I'm the lone loser that hasn't seen it. But, uh, but no. Instead, we watched this, and we had a really good time watching it. And that was really when I started to go. You know, maybe this is the one. Now that we've, now that we've seen it, maybe this is the one to do it. And then, uh, yeah. And then I, I violated a number of traffic laws to watch it a second time. <laughs> You know, we might get around to Hereditary and the Ritual, Vic, if we do this podcast long enough. I can I can give you that uh, little spoiler there. So, Rich, uh, it was this the first time when you were holding hands, snuggling on the couch with Vic? Was this the first time that you uh, watched the film? <laughs> uh, no, I've I've seen this movie. I guess you'd say I've, I've seen it two and a half times now. Um, I watched it uh, once, probably. I'd, I guess it was maybe four years ago, and uh, Vic was also involved which is, is starting to sound a little weird, actually. <laughs> those, those, those weren't hands we were holding, John. The, those weren't pillows! <laughs> the first time I saw this was as part of a weekend-long binge of all of the Halloween films uh, that we watched back-to-back over the course of two days. I, I have to say that by, by the time you reach, I, I don't know how often you guys have binged that many movies in a row of a, of a single franchise, but by day two, when you were in, what is this? This is installment six. What are we at? Eight? Uh, eight. This is, this is installment eight. Yeah. By the time you reach part eight, it, the whole effect becomes pretty numbing. And I would say that the first experience I had watching this, I would label disheartening. Um <laughs> As we were you you are talking about uh you know 15 16 hours in it's a, it's a lot to take in and i feel like this one in some ways is maybe the least connected to the to the franchise in any way i i personally think that ex- experience watching it was not that great watching it again with vic i gotta say sitting down and watching uh halloween with my infant son and trying to convince him to quiet so that daddy could watch michael kill was a pretty rewarding experience (laughs) parenting Um, 101 we we only got to the uh to the sex scene unfortunately before we had to break for the night and uh then i came back and watched it again last week and so I, i have a i have a fresh new outlook on it well, I was uh, watching um, a little YouTube series that probably our listeners are familiar with called uh, Kill Count, and they kind of walk you through various horror movies. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it. But um, the guy was saying, in regards to this one, but watching a, a, a binge marathon of Halloween versus um, Friday the 13th, for example, is kind of a drag because Michael kills people like very much in the same ways, whereas you know uh, Jason is always shaking it up and trying different things and using various toys and stuff. So I would imagine by about the 19th slit throat in one weekend, you were probably ready to tap out on your Halloween marathon. 
Yes, that is the case. But if you look at we also, so we also did Nightmare on Elm, Elm Street at one point, and that was a much more painful franchise to get through. <laughs> and that has less installments and theoretically more creative kills. And that was more of a drag than Halloween. Halloween at least has something sort of pure about it. Very, it's very, it's a very direct slasher series, and so I feel like you can always appreciate that at least. Sorry, I think it's worth pointing out that we also, in between each installment of Halloween, watched William <laughs> Shatner's uh, uh, Rocket Man interpretation from the sci-fi, whatever the, the sci-fi awards that he did. And so, again, by the time we got this, we were watching that for about the eighth time, just as we're getting ready for this, because, of course, Shatner's mask was the inspiration for the, the, the Michael Myers mask. So that really put us in a weird spot when we got when we got into it. Oh, you were probably like a beer, beer and a half in by then too, huh? After about eight movies. <laughs> What's that? I'm sure you'd yeah. had a few a few beverages at that point as well. So spirits <laughs> yeah. were high. Well, our spirits are high. Uh, I think we should take advantage of that and get into this film a little bit. I mean, first we should pick up where we left off uh, last time around. And that's where this movie uh, picks right up. It's one of those, as Vic alluded to, a, a direct sequel uh, we're continuing the timeline actually begun and continued from Halloween 1 to Halloween 2. And then they ignore all those movies and pick it back up with H2O. So this is a discrete little timeline of Halloween history. It's the original uh, Laurie Strode timeline. But as folks may know, the actress that brings Laurie to life, the great uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, did not want to do another Halloween movie. She wanted the last one to be the grand finale for Michael with Laurie winning, but uh, the Akkads would not let him die. In fact, they had some pretty ironclad legal rights to keep Michael Myers alive as long as they wanted him to be. So even as they were wrapping up the uh, last film, they shot something to work into the next film to explain why Michael would still be around after apparently being decapitated and very, very grudgingly, Jamie Lee Curtis went along with that. And she actually, whether due to her own contractual obligations or just an, another paycheck, I don't know. She did come back for this film and the shoe is on the other foot. We'll get to that. But it's uh, it's ultimately Lori who loses and not Michael. And of course, the show must go on for the real star of the franchise. And that is the man in the mask. So... They kind of retconned this whole scenario in which Michael had grabbed a paramedic at the end of the last film and crushed his larynx. And we get all of this in a lovely chunk of exposition early in this movie. But he put his mask on this poor unfortunate and, and the, uh, the, the trademark mechanics outfit. And then he, he made off in the paramedics uniform and the, 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 the fall guy in this scenario was unable to uh, communicate who he really was. And Laurie beheads him. And of course, the truth of that is ultimately revealed. And meanwhile, Michael is in the wind. And that was their basic conceit for how they would get another Halloween movie. All right. Legit question. Michael Myers. 
boxers or briefs? I'm trying to imagine, right? Yeah. Like they, we get the strategically cut scene of him like strangling the paramedic and like the, you know, oh, the mask or whatever. And then him walking up. We don't see him shimming out of his coveralls and like pulling them onto the other guy. He puts his like, pants on one leg at a time, just like the rest of us. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's going commando. <laughs> I mean, we later see that he basically, when he's hungry, he just takes a bite out of a, a, a rat. And puts it down and grabs another one and takes a bite out of that one. So let's just say he doesn't keep his uh, undies clean, I, I would imagine. For, for three years. Well, actually, yeah. this uh, movie also ex- uh, explains one of the sticking points for me in the last one, which is where the hell has Michael been for 20 years? And this movie posits that he just went back to his house and uh, clever enough to not just lurk around there where he'd be immediately spotted. He finds or excavates, I'm not quite sure, maybe they had a, a major bootlegging operation in Haddonfield and <laughs> Prohibition, but there are tunnels beneath his house, and that's where he's been for 20 years. Yeah, they're very well constructed, too. Like They're, they're made out of brick. I mean, yeah, there's, there's a catacomb down there. Yeah, yeah it looks like some I mean, pretty you, quality you, construction. You guys didn't have catacombs under your house when you were growing <laughs> Uh, all right, maybe it's just me. All right, I, I did not do I did not do a whole lot of behind the scenes research, but one thing I did come across was the the story that as part of the keeping this a secret from Jamie Lee Curtis was that the the whole postscript that was shot with the par- the paramedic that whole postscript where you see Michael slip away into the bushes they shot all the scenes with Jamie Lee Curtis then declared that production had shut down. And then went back with like a skeleton crew the following day to shoot the tie-in scene like off the books. Wow. So they picked that scene up when they shot H2O and then just attached it onto this later when it was needed. I would have so much more respect for Jamie Lee Curtis, like clearly like standing on her, her moral ground. This character has run her course like it's time. And then when they, they sort of tricked her into, okay, look, we actually did this. You know, please will you come back? And she says, okay, look, I will come back, but only if you kill Laurie Strode once and for all, and that's it, right? Except then, like, cut to 20 years after that, and she's <laughs> like, well, hey, everybody's got to eat, right? Let's run it back one more time, guys. Yeah, uh, that, that, that yogurt money only goes so far. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's very, I mean, it's very much like what Sigourney Weaver did with Alien, where she was like, when they did Alien 3, she was like, look, I'll do one more, but you got to kill me at the end, because this is, I'm not doing this anymore. And, like, then a couple of bombs later, and she's like, well, yeah, Alien Resurrection, why not? Like, let's... It literally, you're running back the same title. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I just realized that that is kind of funny. They're both resurrections. Yeah. yeah, I mean, maybe like these actresses are sick of the fans and the media like hounding them, and they want to have like an easy answer until they decide to come back. You know, so if the character is apparently dead, well, they're not going to have to deal with that every time they're on a stage talking about some other movie. Well, and to be fair, look, every actor does this, too. You know what I mean? Harrison Ford comes back to first to mm-hmm. Indiana Jones and then to Han Solo. And you know what I mean? Michael Douglas did a fucking sequel to Wall Street because he didn't have a franchise to hang on to. Will Smith goes back to Men in Black. It's it's this is just what how Hollywood works. And like at some point you need a hit and you need a paycheck. And this is this is what you got. So I don't, I'm not throwing too much shade at, at Jamie Lee Curtis, but I do feel like the story gets told and it's like we have to add this postscript that like 20 years later, you know, she she wound up reprising the role. 
And also reprising his role uh, behind the camera was the director of Halloween 2, uh, Rick Rosenthal, returns for this one. Uh, he's a guy whose most of his IMDb page is television. He's even won a couple of Emmys before. He's had a pretty solid career, I would say. But You're, this- you're damn right he has, John. He almost worked with me. Ooh. I'm just saying. Well, no, that would have taken his career to the next level. <laughs> <laughs> That is that is like one of my like three proud contributions to this podcast is I did almost and I, I mentioned this in two, but I did have a couple of meetings with Rick Rosenthal and we almost worked on a project together. Did, I, you I, mentioned I, that I about two years ago when we started the the season. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you yeah, for, to, to to dust off that uh, that little podcast memory there. Anything to add to that? Was it a, a, a production that ended ended up getting made or was it a project that ended up getting shelved? I think it was one of the things where he had an idea. He was looking for a writer and we kicked it around a little bit. I honestly don't remember what the idea was. Uh, did it involve no. like reality TV shows gone horribly wrong? If it didn't, it should have because that seems to be his strong suit. <laughs> he did seem like a like a, a very nice, competent guy. Like I definitely came away from it being like, oh, well, I, I, I'd work with that guy. If you can do if you can do something as bad as Halloween two, and almost forty years later, like you're still kicking in the industry and taking meetings and making money, then like I don't care what's on your resume, like more power to you. Yeah, you made it work. You definitely are a, are a survivor, and I'm glad that you said that, Rich, because I am not a huge fan of Halloween two, and I would say the average Halloween halloweeny or whatever you want to call the fan base of this uh series love halloween too and i even did as a kid but it did not age well when we revisited it for the show i do love seeing is it ben tramer that gets hit yes. by the ambulance that's that that shot is priceless that, that sticks with me that in the hot tub yes well totally those are the, those are the two things and rich you'll get bonus points this episode if you can work in a ben tramer joke i, I, I think we're batting a thousand on that so <laughs> So this film um, didn't do horribly, believe it or not, at the box office. Uh, it, it did open fourth, uh, and that was its high number on the U.S. box office chart. But it ended up making over $30 million domestically and another uh, over seven international. And I'm sure it you know cost very little. So Why do you say that, John? <laughs> Sorry, I'm kidding. Go ahead. Well, you know, shooting half of it on video was probably a cost saver. (laughs) (laughs) One of the fun um, quotes in the Wikipedia page for the critical response that I do really like. (laughs) The New York Post uh, reviewer said, it's so devoid of joy and energy. It makes even Jason (laughs) X look positively Shakespearean by comparison. All right. Now, that is not fair. This is way better than Jason X. (laughs) Yes, I think there's plenty of joy and energy here, and uh, we'll we'll get into that as we um, get more granular here. Any any other overview thoughts that anyone wants to throw out? This this That's... isn't how television is made. <laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, Rich, as a just an overview question, how does the you know with your professional experience? How does the what we see of of the industry and the the production techniques and the the way that this whole project came together? How realistic on a, on a scale of one to ten is this? It depends. If you're willing to accept the idea that these people are totally independent producers, which they they're certainly presented as, um, if you ignore how they afforded all the equipment and 
how quickly they set it up. Like, it's not too far off, I guess. It's definitely not how you'd shoot a reality show. It's it's short about, you know, 60 people on the team <laughs> and uh, and a lot more preparation. Tyra Banks, all she's doing is uh, is making coffee, um, as far as I can tell. And dancing. And Busta, well, he's, he's, yeah. And he's and, and Busta's Busta's a whole other deal. But uh, Busta made I will say that and I'll get into this later, but I do think that Busta plays an excellent producer. <laughs> well, my favorite scene, uh, not to give anything away in this entire film, is him being a producer. So we'll see if we end up uh, agreeing on that point later. It's a classic moment in the history of the Halloween franchise. I, I haven't given my overview or my first experience with it yet. So I'll give that oh, and yeah. then we'll get uh, specific. I had not seen this movie until um, whenever we decided to do it or we were ready to embark on it. And I was kind of delighted by it uh, on a level that, you know, it's certainly not outright admiration because there is so much that is objectively bad about this movie from conception to execution. But I just, there's, I enjoyed it so thoroughly because there is so much in the parlance of this podcast, batshit nuts stuff going on that <laughs> is always worth the price of admission for me personally. And, you know, not to fight the last war over again, but juxtaposed with H2O, for example, which I, I think I equated several times on last show to a polished, um, coincidentally, considering the reality TV tie in here, a polished piece of television is kind of how I saw H2O. And I meant that in the sort of pejorative sense that we we would mean it before uh, The Sopranos and God knows, you know, Breaking Bad and The Wire and Game of Thrones and so on. It, it was kind of like in this sort of slick but sanitized, empty, non-challenging, simplistic kind of um, brief entertainment. Whereas this, I mean, it's just you know, the first 15 minutes feels like one movie and then we get a completely other movie and it's just, it's ambitious and it fails big time. And, and, and a lot of the things that it's doing and it drops a lot of promising possibilities and doesn't really pay them off. And it has some absurdly laughable moments, but God damn it. I just enjoy this movie and it's trying stuff and it's, it's saying we're not just going to be another tedious bunch of uh, high school kids partying and, and calling each other's names as they get picked off one by one. Like say what you want conceptually we're pushing the envelope here and I dig it. I, that's totally fair, John, except this is a collection of, of well, college kids uh, calling each other names and getting picked off one by one. <laughs> well, you know, on one level, so that's, so that's, so that's a spin, I guess. And I, I hadn't really thought of it in those terms, but they, I mean, <laughs> they throw in so much stuff like the dawn of cyber dating and, you know, the dawn of, of multi-camera live streaming and reality TV. And, and it's yeah. just like, I never thought I would see, I think to jump ahead, but just this one shot is so unbelievable to me. One Michael Myers is following another Michael Myers as an audience watches <laughs> streaming over the internet as they creep across a dark room. It's like some kind of weird Three Stooges sketch in the 21st century. I just, I don't know. It's It was mind-blowing. So yeah, props for that. Is, I, I, I do feel like this movie is just kind of cartoonish, like shark-jumping nonsense uh, <laughs> yeah. across the board. But I, I will, I do agree with you that uh, overall the plot is 
different from it's better than taking uh, Michael to Manhattan. Let's put it that way. Much ballsier than that. And the ballsiness, like uh, in the first 10, 15, for me, just seeing for the, this movie for the first time, I was like kind of excited about what we were going to get. And I don't think that the movie stays with any of those things that I thought it was setting up. But nonetheless, the the opening sequence gets off to a great start after a very boring credits, um, I would say. And apparently, and I did look this up on, I saw it on YouTube, there was supposed to be over the credits, a uh, home movie, a super eight of Michael as a, as a little boy with his family. Have you guys, have either of you encountered this or did you know about it? No, no, that actually sounds like a cool idea though. Yeah. Yeah. It, it is a cool idea and it's actually um, done pretty well, but I did listen to some commentary and uh, Rick Rosenthal says that they sort of cut out a ton of stuff that they had in, intended to do and even shot in many cases humanizing Michael and providing more genuine insights uh, in addition to the made up insights about his uh, childhood. And they ultimately decided that it made him less scary to, to humanize this character. Uh, Vic, what, what's your reaction to that? Are we better off without learning more about the true psychology of the, the person behind the mask here? Or do you think that would have been interesting? This, this movie, this many movies deep. Well, I mean, I think that'll be what that will be is an interesting juxtaposition when we get to the uh, the Rob Zombie version, because that is what we get from the Rob yes. Zombie version is a picture of Michael Myers childhood and his family. Again, probably very different than the one that they would have painted in this sort of iteration of it. But uh, it's the kind of thing that I'm interested in. And I think that, you know, the ability to fill in some of those gaps and still leave enough mystery would be something that I would be interested in, but that's a boy, that's a tough tightrope to walk. Uh, as I think we saw with the four five and six, uh, you know, impending catastrophe, uh, as it eventually cratered into, uh, some sort of Celtic druidic nonsense. Yeah. Rich, any thoughts on that? Would you want to, to, to delve more into like a believable, almost like clinical understanding of Michael? I mean, I'm 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 no screenwriter, but my feeling is that there's only two ways that you go with that. You either have it be sort of a normal childhood with with hints of some sort of darkness, which will only make you sympathetic to the character. To me, like, sure, that makes a more compelling character, especially considering that Michael Myers is, has been such a blank slate all this time. But I think the other way, and chances are the way the producers would have gone, would be to have some sort of super cut montage version of a childhood that was filled with these moments of darkness and picking the feathers off of birds and and eating cat poop or like i don't i don't know whatever <laughs> whatever it is that you do to show that like you have a psychologically tormented child who eventually snaps um, jesus and, rich <laughs> and, and that that i wouldn't want to see Vic, come on, Dahmer, Gacy, they all ate cat poop, man. Come on. <laughs> Look, let's not cast aspersions on everybody who ever tried a piece of cat poop. All right, that is not indicative of future homicidal tendencies. It looks like a hot brownie. I mean, how, how I'm, can you I'm not just go saying. There? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought that it was interesting. One of the things that even detractors of this film, and, and there are many, many detractors of this film, uh, would <laughs> would would have have appreciated about it was that the film really tries to expand the um the mythology of Michael Myers 
building off of the first film specifically, for instance, the, the biggest example of this is that the house, the Myers house, this is the first time since the second movie that they've really recreated the original Myers house. And it's actually a very loving and accurate uh, set design, recreating the exact layout of the house that we glimpsed in the open when young Michael Myers kills his sister Judith in her bedroom. I think that's a cool thing, you know, because like by one of those movies, remember it was this like Gothic antebellum mansion kind of a thing that looked nothing like the house that we saw in the first movie. If we're going to leave behind one of the upsides of H2O to me was taking it to a new location and getting to explore a different set piece and some of that kind of stuff. Now we're going to take it. We're going to do a contained thriller. Even this is different from all the other films in a lot of in, in the respect that it takes place in a single location. They cannot leave this house. You and know what a house a, to choose, you know, ex- well, Exactly. But I did find myself, I feel like, you know, right around the 60, 70 minute mark being like, wait a minute, like they've been in this house for an hour with six people in Michael Myers. It's not that big a house. I feel like they play fast and loose with the uh, with the space a little bit in order to make it happen, but not not anywhere near as egregiously as the Friday the 13th franchise does. Well, so there's a I, lot I, of people I, in this house with Michael and none of them seem to interact with Michael until he's good and ready. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's, I mean, he's, he's sort of, you know, just conveniently hiding in shadows wherever he needs to be. And, 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 and out of the camera's eye, by the way, as well yeah. for, for much of it, at least like well, while uh, Tyra Banks is alive. And Michael does have the advantage of those, those like people under the stairs esque uh, tunnels that are apparently going behind every wall and through every floor. So mm-hmm. he has a whole separate system of movement that he can follow that no one else can see. Apparently, well, at one point yeah. he springs out of a uh, mirror at someone. So yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, but I, I do think it's just cool that this house is where it all began, and you know, tying everything back to that and this place that Michael knows better than any other. Like after dealing with Lori, uh, spoiler alert. Uh, you know, kind of where else would he go? You know, he's not going to get on a boat and try to find out what's west of Westeros, right? Topical. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree that the one of the few moments that I felt went beyond just mere homage was the moment where Katie Sackhoff is posed as Michael's mm. sister mm-hmm. um, in front of the vanity, which I did, I did think was worthy of like a slight chill. Um, without just sort of being a, a recreation of a moment that you saw in an earlier movie. Yes, they don't make a whole ton of that, but it's it's right there, and and they kind no, of are that's kind of nice. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So just for the sake of uh, not having to explain a, a ton of exposition in a clunky way as we go through this, I'm just going to sort of give a quick uh, overview of the entire plot for anyone who might not be familiar. Don, I'm sorry. If there are any fans of the franchise listening to this, I feel like they want their exposition in clunky, uncomfortable <laughs> <laughs> chunks. They demand it. Yeah. <laughs> we will try to oblige, I assure you. But uh, yeah, so uh, to refresh your memory, um, if you haven't seen this movie in the last two weeks, the basic premise here is that after uh, Michael dispatches Laurie Strode and apparently frames uh, another inmate at the uh, mental institution where she is uh, for this crime. 
he uh, returns to Haddonfield where he may have been hanging out um, ever since the second movie uh, when not tormenting Laurie and her son in H2O. And meanwhile, at the exact same time, a uh, Dangertainment is the program, a film crew, a TV crew, uh, actually uh, one of the first streaming series crews of all time in 2002 is going to drop a bunch of college students into this house to uh, investigate the mystery of Michael Myers and Buster Rhymes is the impresario behind this whole production. And there's a, a mismatched group of colorful archetypal characters who uh, one by one, as they start to realize what's fake and what is real about this uh, Michael Myers experience, they, they meet their maker and our protagonist is engaged in this sort of online romance of sorts, uh, even though she's being catfished with a uh, a guy, a uh, freshman at the college. And he, watching the live stream at a party, tries to help her navigate this situation. And she and him and Busta Rhymes ultimately <laughs> get the better of Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, all, this, it's uh, just the best <laughs> sentence ever in a, in a synopsis. Well, we should talk about that. Like, just just the idea of dropping Busta Rhymes into this movie and building on, you could say, the LL Cool J entry in the last movie, but making him the male lead and giving him martial arts ability. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, again, batshit nuts, but he enjoys the hell out of it. And one of the things that I like the, about this movie the most is that Michael has seen it all at this point. And this movie seems to go out of its way to present him with things that he has never encountered and put him in uncomfortable situations while squaring off with with Freddie doing his um, – his, <laughs> Jackie Chan routine is something that Michael Myers has never experienced before. <laughs> I can't believe that I'm not being facetious when I say this. Buster Rhymes saves this movie. Yeah, he who would have thought? He's a terrible actor, and yet, and yet every time he shows up on screen, I'm like, oh, this is going to be good. Oh, I don't yes. know that I would say he's a terrible actor. I like, I, he's not good. He's, he's, all right, so he's, he's maybe not a great actor. But he's a compelling screen presence. Yeah, like he's, char- he's charismatic. He's funny. He's he's tough. Like he actually plays kind of being scared. There's a a great moment sort of towards the end of the movie when he's. I love it when he's he's using the uh, the broken shovel because anytime you throw anything like a shovel or a or a pickaxe or anything, like it just breaks on serial killers and horror movies. And but then he uses it as a staff and he slings it at Michael and Michael grabs it. And when you could see that Michael is overpowering him with just one hand and you see him going, no, no, no. Like he can't believe that this is happening. I was like, he actually looks like it's a, it's a genuine concern of like, wait a minute. No, like he can't actually be this strong. I mean, he is the best part of this movie from a performance aspect. Due respect to Katie Sackhoff and and no respect to Thomas Ian Nicholas, but he's good. He's a, I, I wouldn't say he's a good actor. Coming off, he's coming to this off of Narc, the Joe Carnahan movie mm-hmm. uh, with Jason Patrick and uh, Ray Liotta. He's 
really good in that too. And in a, a very different part where I also found him similarly just kind of compelling and interesting. I, I'm a fan. He he makes it his own, you know, like yeah, I, I never felt sure. like his dialogue was uh, stilted. He He really makes everything that Freddie says consistent with the character that he's creating, who is kind of a big hammy, larger than life theatrical guy. And, and yet, yeah, it's not, you know, he doesn't completely lose that authenticity in the harder moments to play, like being afraid or, you know, confused or whatever, you know, the, the more, the, the stuff where he's not just being a big TV producer, he definitely makes so much of, of his screen time. He's, he does steal the show. So you, you got to love that. Let's, Pick up the the Katie Sackhoff reference. Uh, her name is misspelled in the credits, which I found funny. I saw that, yeah. Yeah, but not in the end credits. Only no. in the opening credits. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's hysterical. Yeah, so that that credit sequence is one of the more boring. We don't get any pumpkins um, decomposing or recomposing or anything. It's just um, kind of a shitty font on a black screen, names and 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 some music. But then I do like when we get an image. I actually really like this uh, creepy corridor with Jamie Lee Curtis's voiceover uh, as we're just sort of POVing it down this industrial tunnel. And she's talking about a tunnel, but in in the case that she's talking about, it's as if the tunnel is the end of someone's life, which of course we're going to find out is her own life. She says there's a door at the end of it. And on the other side is either heaven or hell. This is that door. And then we see a door and it's the door to her room tying it all to her and i think that that kind of sets up in my opinion in a good way the resolution of this character's life because remember with this movie now if you embrace the idea that that guy that paramedic was who she actually killed for a person like Lori to have to deal with that while meanwhile your oppressor your tormentor just got away I might end up in a mental institution as well. So I felt that we're rejoining her at the end of her journey here. And I like that. I mean, the movie is telling the audience, this woman has been through everything that you've seen. The original night of horror went, went on that night. And then if you include Halloween two, the rest of that night, we're in the same universe as the last movie H2O, where more people died. The man that she loved was gutted. Her boyfriend was gutted in front of her. She decapitates the wrong guy. Her sanity was already a bit tenuous at that point. So how devastating is this outcome for this character? We don't know exactly what happened to her son. There's like a crumpled up picture of Josh Hartnett on the wall in her room. I don't know if you guys noticed that, but there's a no, deleted... He, he was still alive at the end of H2O? Yes. 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 There's a deleted scene in the extras where she references hiding him. So I kind of had the feeling that he is, uh, her son is alive, but even more tragic in a way that she's here. And meanwhile, he's, he's still out in the world and they, they aren't together for any number of bad reasons. It's even sadder, right? So I think, like, if you look at all the shenanigans that Michael has been up to, for him to pull that off, to have framed this other, this you know, Patsy guy and gotten away and meanwhile made her morally culpable in a sense, even though it was a pure accident for decapitating the wrong guy. He pulled that off and got away. It elevates him to a whole other level of boogeyman. And so to me, it's totally believable that Lori is now the one in the institution. They've switched places. 
and her guilt is massive. I fucking love well, that. And that's I mean the the other piece about this that I feel like as they're drawing her character to a close and this is to be uh, to be honest this the sort of opening 15 minutes of this to me is the strongest part of the movie mm-hmm. not just because Jamie Lee Curtis again even though this is clearly like a reluctant send off that like she didn't want to do this they're sort of making her do this because they you know she's contractually obligated or whatever she gives it her all like she gives it a real mm-hmm. performance and i appreciate that but when we find her in this room what she is doing is mimicking michael's symptoms yeah. right she is she hasn't spoken in many years and the nurse even says she's looking at the window I wonder what she's looking at. And it just reminded me of Dr. Loomis saying he was staring at the wall, but not seeing the wall, looking through the wall at oh, this yeah. night, Halloween night. And that's so that's what I felt like is when she, you know, I wonder what she sees. She always she's always just looking out that window. I wonder what she sees. She sees this night, the night of her death. That's what she's been waiting for. Uh, and so those parallels really struck me. Uh, in this opening scene that we really were sort of drawing things to a close. I mean, you guys are making that sound great. Don't get me wrong. I want to see it now. But don't you feel like it's all sold a little short when the nurse comes in and administers her her, her pills and they talk about how she you know, has been completely catatonic for years. I don't know that if they give a specific number of years. But then the moment they leave, it turns out that actually she's not taking her pills and she's perfectly able-bodied and she can talk. So it's like, how long has she been faking this? That she's perfectly able-bodied and is actually just waiting for Michael Myers to show up one night. Apparently three years, because she does specify the nurse uh, providing the mountain of expo to the new employee. That's, yeah. that's a long time to, to maintain that, that charade. It's one of those moments like, uh, you know, like you, you don't want to think about Michael, uh, uh, you know, shimmying out of his coveralls to hide the other guy. Like, <laughs> you don't want to think about her having like every night, like having you know, cheeked her, uh, her psychiatric medication and then like immediately bouncing up and like looking out the window and then hiding with a lamp for the rest of the night, you know, <laughs> only to have Michael not show up and her to have to go back to sleep. Like, I mean, um, you, you really don't want that shot of Michael, like in his, uh, grubby tidy whities like, you know, struggling to get one foot out of the, out of the <laughs> coveralls, <laughs> kind of hopping on one foot. That's a, that's an internet short in 2002. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but wait, but I do want to ask you guys this because one of the things that dawned on me is so, so right. So she'd been waiting for three years. She's been waiting for this night. She knew Michael would come. What took you so long? Like, good question. She's been, you know, hyper vigilant <laughs> for three years. And then when we start the next thing and they're like, Buster Rhymes is going, all right, they're going to spend tonight, Halloween night, you know, in Michael Myers. So he did this on October 30th. It wasn't Halloween that he came for Laurie Strode. It was. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I don't know when it happened, but I I, I was very conscious that there was no indication that this was anywhere near Halloween, which I I definitely think is notable. I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad thing that for once the guy doesn't show up on, on October 30th. But I mean, yeah, I, I was definitely keenly aware that this particular sequence, which, by the way, I feel like we could do 30 minutes on because it's it is, I agree with you, the most interesting part of the whole movie. This does not seem to be tied to Halloween specifically. Now, you could say that maybe it is Halloween 29th or you know, I mean, October 29th, and it's right before what we see. And he immediately catches a plane back to Haddonfield or whatever, where, you know, whatever Thunder, the distance Thunderbird. is. Doesn't he, doesn't he steal the car? Remember, she has to tow the car. Oh, so he drives, right. he drives a Thunderbird or something back, 
back to to Haddonfield. We don't know where this facility is exactly. I don't think, but presumably in California, that's where she was when she cut the guy's head off. So right, right, but yeah, I mean, I think it's notable, Vic. I'm not necessarily negative about it, but I I would say that he he kills Laurie on a non obvious night. But yeah, that's that's what I mean. Is we're drawing Laurie's story to a close in like mid October. Well, Tuesday, Tuesday, October 14th. Yeah, Michael they don't throw that on the screen on this one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned before her stare. That was a note for me, too, that her stare into nothingness is not dissimilar to his. And again, it's a they, they love in all of these movies, including the new one, drawing parallels where Laurie is, you know, posed in the same position in the grass as uh, as Michael was. And we actually kind of get that in this movie, too. Um, as we do in the David Gordon Green film uh, with a different outcome for Lori in that movie. But I think it's powerful that in this movie, it, even that stare is freighted with the humanity that his never had because she's now a tragic figure. And it's not so much that she's even just faking brain death or or what. I mean, I think she's actually, she is traumatized. I mean, there's no upside left in her life. There's no hope left for her. She's now only living to face Michael one more time. And I think that while on the one hand, you know, as a fan of the Laurie Strode character and as a fan of her victory in the last movie, it's painful to come to grips with such a, I wouldn't say ignominious, but a sad end for her, a pathetic end in a way, in that she's not even with her son anymore and she's lost everything, right? But I think that if you're going to keep bringing a character back like this, for all of these horrible experiences in horror movies, I kind of feel like in a way, this is where she would be at. This is where I would be at. This is where anyone would be at. And while it's fucked up, I think it's kind of powerful that this is how Laurie goes out. Well, she does go out fighting. And there's mm-hmm. something yeah. to be said for that. Oh, in fact, she's she gets a good win here. Like, I don't even think this is, even though she fucks up at, you know, a, a few minutes from now, she has been setting this up. The The woman, uh, the nurse references the fact that she's been found on the roof. Well, what was she doing on the roof? She was setting the trap. We see that she has this Raggedy Ann doll, which, by the way, she had a Raggedy Ann doll in the first movie. It's the same one. Uh, she's been stuffing it with the pills. It's kind of ridiculous when you see how many pills that is. I guess it's three years worth of pills. But she has just been in full readiness for this moment. And she gets him, you know, and he ends up outwitting her at the very end. But she's got him right where she wants him on on the roof. It's true. It's it's hard to be outwitted by somebody via pantomime, right? Well, actually, before we get to that, the buildup is she first sees him out there. And again, playing off the last movie off of H2O, she sees him. But is he really there? And then he disappears. And, you know, from her expression, it's not obvious if she's sure that she saw him or not. But she sees him out the window on this particular night. So then he uh, he's sneaking through the, the building and we establish this other character, Harold, who's an inmate there, who's obsessed with various serial killers, has all these facts about John Wayne Gacy. And I guess that's why he claims he's wearing a mask. But people, the guards are very tolerant of him. He's he's not violent. And in fact, when somebody sees one of the guards sees Harold, quote unquote, in the basement, uh, he assumes that it's it's Harold, but it's actually Michael. And my assumption was, even though we don't see what he sees, is that Harold has a Michael Myers costume that he wears when he's not wearing the John Wayne Gacy mask, right? Probably the sort of thing you should take away from a mental patient. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, they were definitely really letting that guy run with it. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like the whole Harold character, who's kind of like the, the the B character in this whole scenario, while he's a little ham-fisted, was at least a more novel form mm-hmm. of exposition than the nurses who just sort of like spill the entire story out. Um, like it's a slightly more creative way of doing it. And there's something to be said for for this character who's obsessed with serial killers um, having this like level of respect for for Michael, and in a way, I think speaks to what appeals to people about slasher films to begin with is that it's this way to be okay with being like a little obsessed with these morbid tales where no one actually got hurt. To to jump ahead a little bit, the fact that Michael leaves Harold with his knife that might be the most profound little bit of insight that we get into Michael in the whole movie, right? The, I mean, that's the portrayal the, that's of true. Michael in this whole opening sequence is so much more Machiavellian and like diabolical than yeah. anything we see in the rest of the movie or really any of the other movies that that's what I've been talking about is being tantalizing is that I love the Michael that we see in this first 15 minutes, you know, even like giving some credit as outlandish as it is, but for how he cheated death, as I said before, like this kind of uh, Harry Houdini, like escape artist is so much more formidable than the knife wielding automaton that he's largely become. Well, and even I want to ask you guys, because I, like I said, it's been several years since I've seen the series and I, he struck me as almost too intelligent and thoughtful in this opening sequence with who I relate his character to be. So even the whole, the routine of the, the paramedic that he swapped bodies with. And then again, to, to skip ahead a little bit when he convinces Lori, um, that he might actually be the paramedic or might be a, uh, you know, an, an innocent victim, um, when he's being held up by the crane. Um, he has that moment where he tries to fake her out. And that seems like he's really thinking things through in a way that I don't associate with his character. Is well, that normal I, for him? Or No. I don't know, John. I'm going to say, like, going back to H2O, for instance, when we get the whole trap that he lays at the absurdly out-of-the-way rest stop where he the, the women's room, he jams the lock on the women's room to force them into the men's room. Mm-hmm. You know, the door's propped open because the lights so he he you know closes the lights and stuff like it's he's he demonstrates some some kind of forward thinking uh planning and stuff beyond just lurking outside in that movie and he doesn't uh, kill them with that he doesn't again yeah. he doesn't kill them which becomes again that same moment a little bit a little bit like with harold because it, it mm-hmm. occurs at roughly the same spot of this weird insight into his humanity or what might be going on inside of him. And he doesn't kill Freddy either later. We, we definitely have glimpses. I mean, you could even say him driving a muscle car and pretending to be Annie's boyfriend uh, a few movies ago is certainly, again, this is not Jason. To answer your question, Rich, the character has had enough curveballs going all the way back to what he does with Bob in the first movie where he puts his glasses on under the over the sheet. I think there's an argument to say that that's too much and I don't buy that he would do that and that's ridiculous. But I mean the the character has a built-in he's more clever than you think. You can throw curveballs, he can he can pass as a normal human being or do things that you don't think he's capable of um pretty consistently. And I do think that this takes it up another level, but for me my interpretation of that and why I appreciated it 
is almost out of respect for Laurie. And that if you're going to have, after the last movie, Michael Myers is going to win over Laurie Strode. And the series is going to continue with him and not her. You, In a way, you're clearly passing the baton. It has to be that Michael Myers is even cooler than you thought he was. You know, because Laurie has always been our heroine and we want to believe that that she can defeat him and that she's too clever and whatever, too resourceful. And so it's a hard pill to swallow in a sense that that she's going, going to lose. So you want it to be in a way that elevates him rather than reduces her. And mm-hmm. I think that this movie, you know, not necessarily nailing the land, sticking the landing or nailing the execution, but it's really doing a pretty darn admirable job of saying, no, it's not that she sucks. It's that he's fucking awesome. This comes down to a battle of wits. Yeah. As much as anything. Guys, can I? Can we take a timeout so I can grab another beer? Absolutely. But you have to open right. it on mic. You better believe it. Ah. That was an interesting one. It kind of paused for a second yeah. and then fully opened. That's what? right, gentlemen. It's a, I've just opened a, uh, a Latitude 33 Honey Hips uh, to get us through... What I what I'm gonna what I'm gonna charitably call the second half of the show. Well, I have a Ballast Point Brewing Fathom IPA here. Oh, so very nice! That's what I'm about to open. Go nice. I actually hit my the mic with my fingers, so I don't know how that's gonna sound, but uh, that's all right. I got I got beer on my mic, so we'll see what happens. <laughs> uh, uh, my beer is already open. I'm drinking a Pizza Port Palapa. Uh, which and this is not a paid endorsement is one of the best IPAs I've probably had in a couple of years. So a I pizza, high, a pizza port palapa. That is correct. What makes it a, right. a palapa? I mean, is that like referring to well, what style of IPA? I guess I think uh, it's it's definitely like a West Coast IPA. Mm. Uh, pizza port does a lot of great IPAs. A palapa is a it's like one of those little thatched huts on the beach. I think. Yeah, that that rings a bell. Well, I love a West Coast IPA, so I'm also interested in what happens uh, with the the guards getting killed by Michael Myers here. And I do have to say that we get a a, a recurrent trope of the mid-period Halloween films, which is a washing machine. Right? What the fuck? (laughs) So weird. It's like it's 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 the essential trope right after pumpkins, slatted closets, news clippings, wallpapering a room, and Michael tilting his head. And muscle cars. <laughs> and muscle Don't cars. Don't forget, he, he did steal a Thunderbird in this case. You never even see him driving it, but like it wasn't a Ford Focus. <laughs> it, was a, it was a bright orange Thunderbird. Yeah, it's anyway, either right. a muscle car or some eccentric old uh, antique kind of a car. Like. Yeah. Sedan, uh, like a wagon of some kind. It's always something. One of those two. Also, another trope, uh, at least from the last movie, if if never again, Michael descends from the ceiling using only one arm. Yeah, I was going to ask if this was the scene where that happened. That just, uh, that doesn't happen. No one can lower like that. Well, what was he doing? Like, just like clinging to the ceiling pipes like Spider-Man or something? Hiding in the rafters? But he, he, he apparently is really good at just lowering himself with, with one hand and decapitating people really quickly. Well, he does the same thing in, in H2O, right? Yeah, that was the, I mean, that was the most recent, if, if not the only other time he does it. I think that they show it in one of the flashbacks somewhere because mm-hmm. I remember seeing him lower from the ceiling 
And I was, and I thought, didn't we just see this a second ago? And then I was confused about whether it was a flashback or I didn't know what was going on, which is always a good sign of, <laughs> for yeah. screenwriting and editing. How ridiculous is that, that they not only show us the exact beat from the last movie, then they promptly have him do it again, like just to beat it to death completely. There, There is a sense in which this movie is copying the formula of H2O. Yeah. And that's, I mean, again, we talked about that a little bit with Busta Rhymes, John. I think, I think you were too kind when you were like, well, like maybe a little reminiscent of <laughs> LL Cool J. Like, no, they cast a, a rapper turned actor as the male, <laughs> like kind of the male lead. I think this is just another instance of them going, this worked three years ago. Let's, uh, let's run it back again. Busta's character is much more of a catalyst than LL Cool J was in H2O, for sure. It, that's mm-hmm. true. He also gets a shoulder wound where you think he's dead, and then he pops back up later <laughs> on. Well, yeah, I referenced the LL Cool J contract in the last one, um, where he, you know, you, you can't kill him off in a movie. I, I don't know if Busta signed the same contract, but he certainly has some improbable returns from the grave in the course of this film. And we also have another instant kill like it just taps your cerebellum and severs your spine with your throat being cut in this movie um which i'm pretty you know i'm not a murderer or or a war veteran or anything but i'm pretty sure that's not what happens when someone slits your throat um you don't just like immediately the lights are out and you're dead so that was kind of lame but that's how the other guard gets it after the after he finds the severed head in the washing machine John, I found myself thinking spitefully that the woman getting her throat cut in H2O was a better kill than this one. Damn you, Vic. I just thought that out there. <laughs> you know, you're not wrong. Like, it's at least a beat or two longer in that movie. But I was reminded uh-huh. of it. And the music is cool here. Uh, especially, like, I, I do want to draw attention back to Harold. Right after these guard kills, uh, Michael Myers walks by Harold's room and he sees and he knows uh, he recognizes Michael and the music's kind of building and Harold pulls down his mask and he, with this little smile and it's like game on the music just kicks up a notch. It, it really plays for me. Yeah. That, that beat. So that's where Michael uh, stalks down the hall to the door. Again, the fateful door that we've already seen, which is the door to Jamie's room, but she's uh, not in there. She's got the little fake body in the bed as he crashes through the door, like the Kool-Aid man. I, I did make a note, cheap doors at this hospital. Yeah, it's kind of ridiculous how he headbutts through this flimsy plywood door in, in an institution uh, for keeping people uh, behind lock and key. So uh, she's faked her sleeping body in the bed so that she can hit him with the lamp, as you alluded to, Rich. She's you know ready for this every night, uh, apparently, for, for three years. And she escapes, and she runs just slowly enough so that he, she doesn't uh, lose him and leads him up to the roof, and we see in the hallway as he pursues her that his mask has really frizzy hair this time. And then I was thinking, you know, it's kind of ridiculous how often the mask changes, but in a way, because a lot of these movies are years apart, and sometimes he he has to go find a different mask, right? Like, it's not, you don't get the perception up until maybe, I guess, possibly this movie, uh, no, it can't. It has to be a different mask because he left the mask on the paramedic. So he has to go find a yeah. new mask every time. So and this can't be the same, you know, run of masks because it's we're over 20 years. So it would honestly be differences between the masks. 
It'd be nice to find out that like Silver Shamrock is off producing them somewhere. Yeah, who is still making these damn things? Does he wear the mask while he's eating the rats? Or does he have to take it off? Does he lift it up like over his nose and then eat the rat and then pull it back down? Well, he only nibbles, so maybe he can kind of nibble through the mouth hole. Good point. That's what I'm saying. I have have questions. Anyways, go ahead. So she set a trap on on the roof. He goes right where she wanted because she, which is funny, she makes it look like she left her little hospital Johnny or something. So he's like, oh, she jumped off the roof nude, I guess. So she, he goes over to the edge of the roof and he steps where she wants him to step. And she pulls, uh, you know, the snare trap and he's pulled up by his ankle. And apparently Michael Myers lacks the core strength at this point. I mean, he is 20 years older, uh, to do a sit up from this position because he can't reach the rope uh, that's attached to his, his ankle with his knife. He just kind of helplessly swipes through the air with his knife. I guess he's getting up there and he hasn't spent the years between killing sprees doing ab crunches. Well, I think he's just been doing arms, right? Cause he's got to lower himself down. He knows he's going to have to lower himself down from a pipe at some point. His upper he's body not, strength is ridiculous, right. but he's not, but he's not, you're right. He's not thinking about his, not thinking about his core. <laughs> He needs a trainer. He yeah, needs he a, much, a good trainer. <laughs> he needs a much more balanced <laughs> regimen. <laughs> so he drops his bloody knife and, and she picks it up and she says, what took you so long? Which is a very fair point. Valid question. He stops struggling and she says, and this is, this is honestly, I think, a legitimately great line. She says, you failed, Michael. You want to know why? Because I'm not afraid of you. Are you afraid of me? Are you afraid to die, Michael? I love her fucking trolling him like that yeah i mean i just love that i mean but it's also a lesson in like don't don't be a troll (laughs) you know what i mean like it does kind of it does kind of come back to bite her well she could have gotten away with that part and now this is one of the big questions i think of the whole scene so she starts cutting the rope and then he does the same thing that the paramedic did which is sort of suddenly clutching his head as if trying to get it off i don't know it's it's very clever as rich pointed out knowing what we know of him to impersonate someone being, um, you know, thrust into this same victim scenario that the paramedic was because he wasn't actually there when that happened. Like, unless you posit that he doubled back, followed the car when it went off the road and actually watched the paramedic doing that. Um, But it resonates with her and she has a flashback and she's like, I don't want to kill the wrong guy again. You could also question if she cut the rope, would the fall even kill him at this point? And you can certainly question her for falling for this. But at the same time, I can realize that she wouldn't be able to live with making the same mistake twice. I mean, who could live with that? Uh, But then again, it's a completely different situation because the dude walked up here of his own free will with a bloody knife this time. Well, it's, I mean, that's what I mean, though, that it is this battle of wits, right? That that's what's happening in this moment as Michael is playing on her humanity, which is, in fact, her weakness. Yes. Um, and which he doesn't have. Now, I did think that both flashing back to the paramedic, like grabbing his head, like Michael's grabbing his head, and then having her actually audibly say, I just have to be sure as she reached for his mask, that was a bit, a bit too on the nose. And like telegraphing it for michael like it's she seems totally shocked when he grabs her arm (laughs) even if i understand why she did what she did it feels like there could have been a safer way to do it i agree with that a hundred percent that that part bugged me for for someone who's been such a survivor it's a pretty amateur move 
Yeah, it's hard to justify her falling for it. I mean, it definitely is a fuck up on her part. I'm, I'm definitely being an apologist at this point, but I could yeah. think, you know, in, in that moment, maybe not thinking too clearly. My cat is not happy John, with her, her decision John, making. John's cat makes an appearance. Savannah's yeah. been in the room the whole time. <laughs> My cat is saying, stop I... making excuses for bad screenwriting. Yeah. It, it, it does diminish her. <laughs> But look, I mean, again, like just going for it, it's like, how do we have a way for him to win that's clever, original, and resonant, fitting, that ties in to what happened before? It's a it's a worthy effort. Laurie Strode is, to the end, the girl who dropped the knife. Nah, yeah. You know what I mean? She dropped the knife in the first one. She dropped the knife in H2O. This is, metaphorically, she dropped the knife again. She had him where she wanted him. She could have put him away. And she dropped the ball like that's the that might be the defining characteristic of her character. I'm OK with that, actually. I like that interpretation. Yeah. So she fucks up. He grabs her. Uh, they go over the side and he stabs her. The knife ends up in her back. She knows she's going to die. And again, I think that they give her a pretty cool beat or she gives herself like I don't know the origin of this, but she kisses him on the mouth. And says, yeah. I'll see you in hell. And to me, I, I love that in a way. This is acknowledging she feels at least that her life has taken her there and, and and she will be going to hell for the mistakes that she's made. And that's not that's not a fair self damnation, but it's not just tough talk in this case. Like oftentimes characters say, I'll see you in hell. But in this case, I believe they've set up both very explicitly in this movie and sort of just by default through her actions and, and experiences over the last you know, several movies that she believes they're intertwined, that they're damned, and he has been the instrument of her damnation, but she is in fact damned. John, I want to make a, a point that I feel like Mike uh, Kuchak would make were he still on the podcast. The late, great because Mike Kuchak. The, well, not late. <laughs> well, just, just late great, of the show. <laughs> great and, and otherwise occupied. But this is a little weird, but this was something that occurred to me. So we talked a lot over the course of this about the sexual aspect of Michael Myers and like the fact that he seems drawn to his sister when she's naked to Linda, uh, uh, Linda and Bob after they have sex, him constantly trying to get into it when he puts the sheet on and the glasses, like he's trying to be Bob. You get that a step further in, I guess it's in five when he's pretending to be Tina's boyfriend. She actually gets in the car and sort of kisses him on the cheek. There is this constant him trying to get into this world of sexuality and then acting out in rage in response to it. And this felt this moment when, Lori kisses him on the mouth because you said it. She kisses him on the mouth and it's a it's a weird incestuous beat. And it was the first time I had this thought of like, is that what this is about? Is this is there is there a does Michael have a weird incestuous feeling towards his older sister, Judith, who he murders after she's naked and you know what I mean? Is that sort of the 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 response that he's having? And then to see it sort of culminate in this moment where there's this weird kind of pseudo-sexual element to the fact that she kisses him on the mouth before she dies. 
I, I don't know that I was able to to make any sort of like psychosexual connection between her kissing him and his like his back history with his sisters. It's not like you ever got any sort of connection like that between the two of them prior to that. So why would she be projecting that on him when it's not something that she's aware of? Well, I get it in the sense, I think that's a really valid point. But when Vic was saying it to me, it resonated in the sense that like, she gets him, even if it's not directly aimed at her, she has had enough time to think about this and to know like all the things that he's done and all the targeting of, of the victims that he's targeted beginning with his sister, that she knows his deal. Like he doesn't have a lot of psychological secrets from her. It's not in any way showing any desire or ambiguity or reciprocity or anything close to that. It's like contemptuous. It's like, I know you're a fucking little perv, you stupid fucker, and I'll see you in hell. And that was how she showed that she had his number. And I, I think that that is, is, is really cool. I mean, because they are siblings, and she learned early on that she was connected to this guy and that she had to figure him out. But that the connection between them could never be broken. She can't even escape. And in fact, being this guy's sister led her on the path to hell. And try as she might, there was no getting off of it. And this finally, podcast listeners, is where the fate thing made sense to me. It finally all comes together. Because this sad end to the spunky teenager's life, whom we met in 1978, is all about fate. That's her her epitaph as set up in the original movie and relentlessly pounded in every subsequent film, even when the filmmakers had no idea that this was where she was going or probably even what the theme, the theme of fate really meant. They Every movie has to somehow mention it because they know that it's important. And this movie, I think, finds a decent bookend for it because this demise for Laurie Strode is all about fate and the idea that she was doomed from the beginning and there was no escaping death. There was no way for her to get off of this path because she's so intimately connected to this killer, to Michael Myers. And this movie and her death is her completely acknowledging that. And also kissing her brother like she's a Skywalker. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. And falling, plummeting through the treetops (laughs) in slow motion to pretty cheesy music. Although interesting, John, in that respect that we then smash cut, you know, not smash cut, but we go right from that to another college lecture. It's like, all right, now that we've dispensed with the lecture we started about fate in 1978, let us now pick up on another lecture about Jung. And like, yeah. we'll, we'll start up another thematic thread that we can move on with. Exactly. It's a totally different concept. It's the idea that each of us has this shadow within us. And and I do have to say, I like the idea that the only girl in the class who's paying attention to that, the young talk, and who knows who the figure we must face up to is called the shadow would be the foil for Michael Myers. I mean, that's not bad. I actually got a little bit of a kick out of that, that they tied I- those two things together. I did, but I also, A, I am sworn off as a screenwriter. I will never write another classroom scene Mm -hmm. that, like, sets up, uses Jung or Frankenstein or fucking whatever to set up the thematic elements. As we're getting our introduction to this girl, uh, I really found myself struggling with 
what her arc is. And so we get this talk about Jung in the shadow and facing up to our shadow and everything else. Do you guys feel like we get anything interesting out of that? Or is this just kind of hokum that they're using I, to, to dress up the scene? I, I just want to say, just take a quick step back. So we, we've jumped from Lori died. I don't know what the, what is the last shot that we see at the, at the sanitarium? Is it just Actually, Lori? I would love no. to not skip over that, Rich, if you do want to double back. Um, and it's my fault. I, I mentioned this first, but there is another pretty cool beat right after Lori lying in the in the grass, uh, much the way Michael did 23 years earlier, except she won't be getting up. We then cut to that darkly, cruelly playful beat of Michael giving Harold the knife. All right. John, to be fair, she technically she kind of does get up. She does. Because she, she's, she's in the she's in another movie, but that would be <laughs> erasing that this happened. So yeah, no, I yeah, know. yeah. So we go from that, and I believe that's where the title comes in, right? Yeah, actually, yeah. I really again, this is something I like in watching this the first time. I was like, holy shit, I might this might be a cool movie <laughs> because what happens is he. He, Michael has this layer of sophistication where he recognizes that Harold is not somebody he wants to kill. I mean, whether he digs what the guy is doing as an you know appreciator of his and his work and those of other killers, uh, or he's framing the guy, which I don't love, but some people have that interpretation. He gives him the knife and leaves him alone, and of course, you know Harold loves it. And he's reciting his story, Michael's story, and he's getting a lot of facts wrong, but whatever. That's probably just lazy screenwriting. Um, it kind of reminds me of, of Candyman here because the legend of Michael Myers being perpetuated might be something that Michael Myers appreciates. Well, especially in the context of this film where it's all about the people revisiting the, the, the legacy of the murder. Exactly. Like that he wants it to be appreciated. He wants a design to be seen in what he does and who he is. And I think that that makes sense when you look at the shit that this Michael Myers is responsible for. I think there's a sense too, in which, and John, I think you mentioned this earlier that Harold is kind of a proxy for us, right? Mm-hmm. No, like uh, this Rich almost, a rich, I'm sorry. But this is almost like the movie sort of giving you permission to be like, yeah, look, it's okay to root for the killer. We know that Michael Myers has fans, and Michael appreciates that. It's you a know. glorification of Michael Myers, and and I don't think in some socially irresponsible way or anything no, like that. No, 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 yeah. no, not at no. all. I mean, I think, though, he's the star, and the movie is fully acknowledging that. And when yeah. when the guy says, now he's back, and chuckles, and the music kicks in. <laughs> it's kind of like, oh, yeah, Michael Myers won. You know, Lori yeah. lost, and her story is over, but he's walking down that tunnel the other way, back into the world. And it is a resurrection of sorts, and that's when you get the title card. And so, like, I'm like, great, let's see Michael Myers' first adventure without Lori in this timeline. At this point, to me, everything is pulling in the same direction. You know, like it's a new beginning for Michael Myers. We've got closure yeah. on the Laurie Strode story. It's going to be a Halloween for the the new millennium. It's a fun beat, and there aren't a lot of fun beats in Halloween movies. And then we realize that we, we, we are Jamie Lee Curtis, marvelous actress. We're going to replace her with Busta Rhymes. Yeah. <laughs> and Bianca Kajlich. Kat Kajlich? I don't know how you pronounce it. 
But so she's that, playing so, a character named Sarah Moyer. <laughs> yeah, and, and where is it? So is it is it Haddonfield that we wake up on on the, the mm-hmm. other side of the credits? It's so we're, yeah. we're in a we're in a college or a community college in Haddonfield, and, and and that brings us to the the speech that you were mentioning about about Young, right? It's it's Haddonfield University, <laughs> which we had we hadn't previously wow. mentioned that the the fighting Cornhuskers or something. Okay. She's a student, uh, our protagonist, and there's references to her chastity. So she's kind of a bookish girl with no boyfriend, which checks a box for final girls. And then we meet her friend, Jen, played by the great Katie Sackhoff of Battlestar Galactica. Hey, it's Starbuck! Exactly. (laughs) Gives a very hammy performance in this film, but I, I liked it. She signed up Sarah for something, and along with their friend Rudy, who's played by Sean Patrick Thomas, and he's a chef in the making. This character has one defining element, which is he's obsessed with food. <laughs> it's taken to comedic extremes, let's say that. I, th- I don't think it was as far-fetched as some people uh, I've seen. Like, I think a lot of people have something that they live, breathe, eat, and sleep. And this guy, it's, I'm going to be a chef, entrepreneur. Um, and he does show some interest in the ladies. So I don't have a big problem with the, the character. Interesting to note that the character he reminded me of was LL Cool J's character in Deep Blue Sea. I don't oh, know yeah. if there's a connection oh, that's there. Interesting. That was the first thing I thought of, especially just because LL Cool J was sort of fresh in my brain. Totally. No, I mean, I see that parallel. I just saw that movie not too long ago. The character introduction beats are very vivid, clean, and clear, even if they're broad. And Vic, we had this debate last time when we were talking about H2O where you were trying to tell me the defining characteristics of Michelle Williams or something. It's like um, her dad didn't pay her student loans or something. And all right, I admit that the guy, you know, being obsessed with what food does to you and, you know, using spices to throw in Michael Myers' face is broad. I prefer that. I just, I find that more fun and interesting than Michelle Williams' character. I thought hers were more intimate and specific, uh, and there is not one interaction in here that is as good as the the beat between the two kids when she's like, "Oh, I just love food so much. I'm gonna get so fat." And he's like, "Ah, I, I just, you know, I I can't wait that I find obesity very sexy." Jesus, God, you're so progressive. There's <laughs> there's not one interaction between any of these characters. So, I, I can hear Rich uh, paging through his notes. Uh, yes, I agree with you uh, on that. <laughs> no, I just I, I, I have a crib sheet of character names. Uh, that's that's all. I was reviewing. Oh yeah, Rudy is the character uh, that Rudy. we're talking about here. Who was who? Actually, I I am beat him. Has had a pretty good career. I didn't realize he was the guy from uh, Save the Last Dance, which was a big hit. I definitely knew of him and vaguely remember him, but I think he went away at some point. And he does a good job here, and uh, personally, I, I kind of appreciated his character. So I will say he he has more going on that everyone has more going on than our protagonist, who <laughs> who only has the slightest hints at some kind of backstory, but never is in any way developed, unless I miss something. No, you across didn't. the entire film. This character is the weakest protagonist we've ever seen in a Halloween film. The point where she's at the the climax of the film utterly ineffectual like she may as well be the donald pleasance like she's just she she's just trapped under something and waiting for buster rhymes to do the real work her superpower she screams really loud once once it never even comes back 
Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, talk about like getting no mileage out of your character uh, trait. Like the idea that she shatters a glass is just some random gag. And of course, you know, she didn't actually, the actress can't scream. So that was like somebody scream double or something. So even that is sort of an inauthentic beat. I like the open, like I love the way the first scene of her, as I said before, like that we established, she's sort of has a deeper understanding of this that other people don't. And it's going to be relevant. I think that she looks cool in that first scene. I like that she's riding a, a scooter in the next scene. Like they give her like kind of a, a sexy intro. And then for the rest of the movie, she's basically dishwater. Yep. That's a good assessment, John. Uh, she can text. She can text. She's really good on her Palm pilot. All right. So they're going to uh, be on this show and I guess, I guess there's a scholarship involved, which doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what Sarah is motivated by. And Jen wants to be a star because she's self-involved. Anybody want to say something about the, creepy, nerdy, pervy dorm denizen who sniffs panties. <laughs> uh, th- that whole scene felt so evocative of the uh, Cabin in the Woods mm. uh, opening scene to me for some reason, which I haven't seen in, in, a, in a long time, but something about the way that it was shot and framed. It is weird that that guy pops up and then is never seen again. He, he seems like a character that would be introduced in a Kevin Williamson movie which I know this is not, and then would would like go on to provide wisecracks for the rest of the film. So it's weird that he just disappears after that. And even like the the like he doesn't even provide any useful information. It's a it's a strange, pointless scene. I enjoyed it. I mean, I thought it provided a a, a little bit of expo about where they're going, um, as obvious as that will soon be, and some comic relief. And like there's just the timing where he switches from serious to ridiculous. And I, I know it's a love it or hate it beat, but for me, it it totally worked. It, it's a fine line uh, tonally, but I thought the execution was pretty good, both kind of on the page and in the actor's performance that it doesn't feel as cliche as it could have been. It, feel, it feels weird, which again, for me, weird is is good. I thought it played, but yeah, it's just bizarre. I did like what when he says he picked up a knife and he never put it down again. I don't know how valuable it is, but it's another interesting way to frame what Michael has been doing. And I like that we focus on the protagonist's reaction to that. It's a good line. Did did you guys ever see a, a girl's dorm room with underwear hanging up like I that? Was gonna, I no. was going to ask about that. That's weird. I mean, I know that such a thing exists, like to dry, hand dry, because like some of those things, I guess, like the delicates, you 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 wash them by hand and then you hang them up to dry because they'll deteriorate if you put them in the machine. So, I but I've never seen it. Uh, we really need to get we need to get Emily uh, Rua back on this uh, back on this podcast or something. We're not, hey we're Emily, not tell us about your panties. <laughs> How did you dry them in college? You're right. That's not appropriate, but. <laughs> I'm just saying the three of us like like galoose being like, uh, what do girls do with their underwear in college? I don't know. <laughs> it seemed uh, weird to have it right by the door. It seems to be inviting seemed, something. It seemed weird. Yeah. yeah. It's a strange scene. And John, I'm 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 glad that you liked that and hated H2O. That's <laughs> But again, dude, like I <laughs> that's I don't want to beat a dead horse, but like H2O needed some crap like that. I mean, I just I I felt like it was a 
a competent episode of some Dick Wolf spinoff, you know? No, like, you're you're totally right. Panty sniffing. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, Sarah, we learn, is having this email uh, relationship with uh, Ryan Merriman, who I believe is another actor uh, who pops up in this period. But he's playing Miles Barton, whose screen name is Harrison Ford's character from Blade Runner. And I, I think this is another wonderfully dated story element that they're having this campus email sort of catfishy quasi romance. The character draws parallels to sonnets between knights and ladies, this sort of correspondence between people who haven't laid eyes on each other. I, I kind of found it charming, to be honest. My favorite dated element of this is I think Rudy says, we're going to be bigger than the Osbournes. Oh, yeah. And yeah. like, I didn't even... Like if you're a younger pie, you're under 30 and listening to this podcast, like I don't know how to explain to you <laughs> what the Osbournes was and why that reference made sense. It tells us when this was made. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But just trust me, it did. And we're sorry. Like, it's cool. Well, um, the culture of reality TV at that time was like the Osbournes and Survivor and I guess Big Brother, at least the international uh, version existed, but it was – not a whole lot. The only references you ever get are the Osbournes and there's a Survivor reference at one point. Yeah, you're yeah. you're going to be voted off the island, uh, right. Katie Sackhoff says. Which at least is still timely. So we do get a jack-o'-lantern here. Uh, and now it's the night before Halloween, as usual. But we don't know in relation to Laurie Strode's death how soon after this is. And we meet Busta Rhymes as Freddie Harris, the producer of Dangertainment, and Tyra Banks as Nora, which I found distracting. I mean, it's not like I've seen Tyra Banks in enough other than her talk show to be like, to, to somehow not be weirded out by seeing her playing a character. Even though I, I understand, like, she's had a couple of other good acting roles somewhere. In well, there. ironically, she's also the, the host of... of- the extremely successful America's Next Top Model, long-running reality show. So, yeah, yeah. I thought I thought she was competent in this. Sure. I didn't hate her. She was fine. You know what I mean? It wasn't. It, it was. It was as good as any other actress you you probably could have put in the part. Uh, well, from I, a I diversity perspective, I believe this is the only time we've had two African American characters of any real note in this particular franchise. Three, John. Don't forget Rudy. Of course, yeah, Rudy in this yeah. movie. Yeah, I thought you were talking about like who's Rudy in uh, in season of the witch. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. No, there's there's no there's there's no African American characters in Halloween <laughs> three. <laughs> Actually, there is, but uh, he's like just a gas station employee. That's true. Yeah. yeah. No, it is it is a is a largely Irish film. So uh, we meet some other supporting characters who are going into this house, again, with like one defining characteristic, uh, a guy who seems to know a lot about Michael, uh, who is Bill, played by Thomas Ian Nicholas, Jim, who's kind of doing a Christian Slater and Heather's impression. Uh, by the way, what's with these generic names? Like, I know some scripts, like, everybody has some weird name, you know, Knife, uh, Dakota, and whatnot. But in this movie, every every character is, is, is like, a very basic biblical kind of name. It's weird. Come on. Kitty, Kitty Sackhoff is Jen Danzig. <laughs> yeah, the last <laughs> names, maybe they have some fun with. Um, I just saw a pod, or listened to a podcast where they said there's a Seinfeld joke in this 
where Daisy McCracken uh, is playing Donna Chang. And Donna Chang is the Seinfeld character where Jerry thought he was dating an Asian woman, but she's actually not. And of course, this is not an Asian woman. So that must be intentional. That has been sort of tickling my brain since I looked at the IMDb page. That's that's actually very funny. Shit. I think these writers, Uh, by the way, I know nothing about the, the two screenwriters. They have not done a lot, but I would assume that they were drawing on... The, the Kevin Williamson stuff that you guys mentioned and just sort of what was popular at the time and, and their own voice. But I think there's just a lot of influences here. Um, they're not exactly Quentin Tarantino, but they're, they're doing their best. So wait, what is Donna Chang's thing? Like, Oh is, yeah. Is she just sort of intellectual. Cause I really yeah, I she's struggle with, I struggle with her. She's a critical studies major, but I don't even really know what that means. Like she's just the smarty pants, you know, that's kind of it, right? She's just an obnoxious, like pseudo intellectual. I don't even know if it's pseudo. I mean, I think she is legitimately smart. She's not just faking it, but well, no, okay. no, 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 no. When they're making out and, and they're getting ready to have sex and he says, say something smart. And I forget, she quotes Nietzsche, and it was like the most obvious, obnoxious quote. Anyways, She's 21 I, years old or less. I don't Come care. On. I started rooting for her death at that moment. <laughs> you, your obvious Nietzsche quotes. <laughs> at least she didn't talk about the abyss staring back into her or something. Isn't that what she said? No, that's not what she That's not what she says. I, I hadn't heard it before, personally. I'm not as well. I don't drop Victor Hugo references on this podcast as much as you do, Vic. Oh, that one stinks, that John. That stinks. It's That's a callback. Like that. Okay. That's great. a callback. It's be like that. Yeah. Rich, Rich, um, now, as you know, in, in reality TV, it's a great oversimplification, but people are generally types. And this movie is certainly exaggerating the idea that each of these characters are phonies in one way or the other. They want to be famous and they're presenting their character for the show who and what they style themselves to be. Is that also how you saw it? I'd say the one person that that's certainly true for is the Katie Sackhoff character. Who's just Mm -hmm. like wearing it on her sleeve that she's doing this to become famous, which uh, if history has proven anything about reality TV, it's not going to work. Otherwise, yeah, you could say the same thing is true of horror movies in general, though. Like, aren't they all just just be, like typically like fairly thin archetypes, except for the rare examples where someone actually works? I mean, the ironic it's, part is our heroine is not like at least that's something about her. She's not trying to play some type for the camera. That's fair, which kind of wonder makes you wonder why they to, – to me, I'm like, what was the audition process for this? Why did they actually choose these people? Buster Rhymes is acting like we're at an audition, but we've already done our casting and narrowed <laughs> it down to six people. So there's definitely some haziness there. But again, like you're looking at a pretty low-run operation that's run by two people. So I guess I guess they just chose six off of what we can presume were, were internet audition videos, and they picked the six people they like. And we're expected to believe that this is just an orientation sequence. It might be in the deleted scenes or something, but I know I saw that Freddie was giving Nora, Tyra Banks' character, some shit for like he wasn't impressed with their interviews in in the, in this montage where we meet these characters. Where he was kind of like, "Oh my god, you know who did you who did you find?" So apparently she cast them, and he didn't have any input until now. But the one thing I really don't want to glaze over is. 
when our when our protagonist, our final girl, uh, screams because she's frightened by a falling light, I believe. Oh, the cameraman and... just like knocks over this light stand <laughs> and it breaks a, a light. <laughs> Is that Rich? As a as a producer, how would you respond to a light falling over? Would you be delighted at the scream from your cast member, or would you be furious at the replacement cost of your airy kit? If if I was like if I was in a room where a human being actually screamed at such a pitch that it broke a glass on the counter like we're in a in a Looney Tune cartoon, like I I would you know what I'd be wowed I'd forget about the broken light fixture. Well, and also Fair it's enough. appropriate to the genre of the show, right? Like he needs a good screamer, one would think. So I guess so. I just to me as a viewer, that moment told me more about what this movie's like point of view was going to be more than any other moment in the entire film. Like her screaming and breaking a glass is just not something that happens in the real world. And so to have it happen here was this moment where you realize that, okay, the filmmakers here clearly are interested in reality in any way, shape or form. And I know it's already sort of a a fantasy, you know, storyline to begin with, but at the same time, I felt like it had really become untethered from any kind of reality at that point. Well, back to the two movie thing. I mean, I really think the Jamie Lee Curtis stuff has a way more serious vibe. And once we get into the real movie, it's almost a horror comedy. Everything is kind of ridiculous. And and that's a pretty good example. Yeah. So any thoughts on the scene where Sarah goes to Freddie's hotel room and wants to drop out of the show and, this is essentially where we, the only purpose of this I can see, because he quickly talks her out of it, is to show A, he's persuasive, and B, that he's obsessed with Kung Fu. <laughs> <laughs> I think he hit the nail on the head. Yeah, no, I, that's that's it. It's the it's the Kung Fu. Which, I, well, except that I liked Buster Rhymes in this. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like I would I would bet dollars to donuts that this were him going, the shit you come up with off the top of you, just, just pat yourself on the back. Just pat yourself on the back. And then he and he reaches back and pats himself on the back. I bet he improvised that. I agree. I really do. He's really good in it. It's a really good scene for him. Well, that's what I meant by making it his own. I mean, I think a lot of his stuff feels like if he didn't come up with it, he at least sort of reworked it or he made it feel organic for, for him. And that definitely feels yeah. like that. He also says something. I mean, it's not the best theme in the world, but thematically – Something is coming across when he says, what do you mean you don't want to be famous? That's the American dream. (laughs) And, you know, that's what we were worried about. It's on the nose. But at that time, like our culture was really wrestling with it. And by now we just don't because it's already here and it's over and we all accept that it's the truth. But the cultural zeitgeist Mm -hmm. back in the, you know, around the turn, turn of the century that we now take for granted is that celebrity culture and the so-called democratization of celebrity brought about by reality TV was transforming a lot of our assumptions about our identity and our aspirations. Well, and the internet for that matter. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. For sure. It's all I do connected. Think what it seems like they're setting up in this scene is if Sarah has a character arc, and I'm not saying that she does, there seems to be a lot of references to her being sort of trepidatious and she's a little scared and like here she is trying to pull out of this. This is about her kind of being a coward Mm -hmm. and finding the courage to stand up to the shadow. Is that, are you guys sort of getting that? Well, she says fear makes me want to throw up, which I thought was funny and real. 
you know, like you don't generally get that from a, a heroine or a hero. You know, she, she just seems like this sort of, it's both works to her benefit and to her and detracts from her character that she's this kind of mousy, ordinary person. And I don't think the character arc ever really completes like as lame as it is to see another mousy heroine turn into a badass. We don't get that here. Like she, they don't even make her a badass. Maybe with the chainsaw, that's what they're going for. It's Uh, a terrible, it's a terrible, it's a terrible scene, but oh, her dialogue uh, there is just brutal. I did notice though. I, the one thing that jumped out at me is when she comes in when they when they when they show up for the orientation. She comes in, and Jen is talking to Rudy, and she's saying something like, "Look, she can't still be mad at us for the last thing we." Oh wait, no, no, no here she is. As so I got the impression that like they had kind of drug her along into these these crazy ideas of theirs a couple of times. And then there are also these intimations that Rudy's kind of into her. Did yeah. you guys get that? That, I that did. he's, you know what I mean? That he's kind of fostering a relationship. And it's just another one of those threads that goes nowhere. I, I yeah. didn't mind that. I didn't mind that. And I think the one, like her defining characteristic, like in this group of people and in this movie, is that she's real, you know, and that she's somewhat in touch with her feelings and who she is. That's not very exciting. Uh, it's not very deep. <laughs> it's- <laughs> who who she is happens to be extraordinarily boring. Exactly. But yeah. She's comfortable with that. Without being, you know, a particularly obviously stiff or unlikable actress in any way, I, I do think it's safe to say this is a a really forgettable uh protagonist. Anyway, so her boyfriend of sorts, or at least he wants to be her boyfriend. Deckard is watching her audition tapes or all of the audition tapes on his computer. He promised her he was going to watch the live feed of the broadcast of them all in the Myers house, but he has to go to Mickey Stern's party because he's him and his buddy are the only freshmen to be invited. And Sarah, you know, writes back to him with a stylus on her Palm pilot. He likes her more than she likes uh, him, but she's kind of open to it. And her friend Jen is theorizing all of these bad things about who's on the other side of this computer screen. And apparently uh, she knew everything about uh, catfishing, even in the dawn of the internet uh, dating age. Uh, Cause she, you know, theorizes that he's some creepy old dude. Was the whole like <clears throat> writing with a stylus on a Palm pilot. And then it would be, so you'd write in your own handwriting and then it would turn into the printed letter. Like, was that ever really a thing? I feel like that doesn't even work now. No, I I actually think you're right because I did have one and I thought it just like it looked like, uh, you know, a a signature. It looked like handwriting, but I don't know because I barely use the damn thing. We should stress to everyone that Palm Pilot is not a euphemism. It was an actual piece of technology (laughs) that once existed very briefly. I have a lot of Palm Pilot questions in my in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I like how he changes font and point size at one point. Yeah. Like, he's like, I really need to make sure she sees he's in the house. So I'm going to up the point size (laughs) and make the font italic. So we do get a genuine laugh as we meet the uh, cameraman setting up stuff in the house. And he says that he went to Long Beach State, same as Spielberg. I I got a genuine (laughs) laugh out of that. That's a good one. Uh, This is actually a good scene. It is. It's a good kill also. Um, cause Michael shows up and startles him and we get some real makeup gore effects as, um, we juxtapose 
Hyra Banks latte making with a very sharp tripod leg going into this cameraman's uh, throat area. And uh, this is coming off of a few films where gore was um, in, in short supply. So by this point, I guess the MPAA had, um, you know, released the brakes a little bit and we're starting to get to show some gory stuff again in this series. I believe that the tripod murder with the camera filming it is is a reference to the uh, the British film Peeping Tom, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is generally regarded as sort of a classic. I, I was going to say a strange like place to pay tribute to that, but uh, Michael is a Peeping Tom, right? So makes sense. There, there you go, Peeping Michael. So yeah, that's a that's a that's a nerdy film reference for all you. Uh, I had seen Peeping Tom, although many, uh, many, many years ago, although the quick Wikipedia search on it does list Peeping Tom as uh, as a progenitor of the contemporary slasher film. Mm-hmm. I've heard there you that. Go. I've heard that. By the way, Rich, again, another um, industry question for you. So when you're uh, you've been on a set or at this, you know, at the at the soundstage, do paparazzi come shoot pictures of the producers when they arrive? <laughs> a lot of, lot of press, I figure, right on the first day of a Bad Girls Club. You know, I was I was willing to write I was willing to write this off as the local Haddonfield uh, news media were intrigued by the fact that people were re-entering the Myers household. So I was willing to give that one a pass. Although I, I, I will say, not to date myself, but when you show up with Paris Hilton in Rhode Island, yes, the paparazzi do show up like this. <laughs> we also have subliminal flashes of Michael Myers here and there in the footage here, which seems supernatural. Because it's presented the way it is, it, it must be the intent is that that's something that the producers have cut into the live feed that you're watching on the Internet. Mm, that I, would make that, sense. That's, that's the only reasonable reason for having it there. Otherwise, it's just silly. The curse of Michael Myers had some pretty extreme silliness uh, in there just you know, <laughs> <laughs> just because it, it felt like MTV. But yeah, I think you're right. Um, it's probably because that's a, a good segue. One of the games the script uh, is playing with the audience who's seeing this for the first time is for the, us to decipher how much of what these characters uh, encounter are, are fake things clues versus what are real clues because freddie and we don't immediately know this of course he's seated the place with props like a child's high chair with restraints on it which on the face of it is pretty fucking ridiculous but as it kind of plays to the characters and maybe to the audience you know maybe all of this is authentic michael myers stuff but in reality uh no pun intended uh freddie is sort of uh manipulating his reality show as one would really expect Wait, Rich, I just have a question. Is that that's not true, right? Reality shows would never <laughs> manipulate reality in that in that sort of way, would they? Uh, I can't say that I've ever worked on a show where we manipulated it in the way that that Freddie has. You never had a show with a high chair that had chains and restraints <laughs> on it. Don't make me pull up your IMDb page. <laughs> never where you take people and throw them in, a, in an environment and then present them with with fake props to react to. I can't say I've done it. I'm sure that I, someone else has. I'm going to I'm going to say as someone who participated in a show called Murder that I have. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Did so, you ever have you. like a severed arm with Made in Taiwan stamped on it? 
Yes, <laughs> yes, John. Yes, we did. We absolutely did. <laughs> See, that's how authentic this movie really is, folks. You haters. Yep. There you go. So uh, in the Halloween party that we start to uh, cut in between uh, the, the Myers house and this Halloween party, as steadily more and more people join Miles in this little uh, side room away from the raging teenage or college insanity uh, where he's watching the live broadcast, where apparently in 2002, the internet and live streaming was capable of allowing you to, to as an audience, click between camera angles. It was uh, amazing. Yeah, that's very ahead of its time. And by the way, their costume choice, Miles and his buddy, they're uh, Travolta and Samuel S. Jackson in Pulp Fiction. Do you guys think that that's awesome or totally lame? <laughs> did, did you say Samuel S. Jackson? Uh, uh, I did. I, You know, I read my notes and I read that horrible typo as if it was correct. Samuel right, L. Jackson. Sorry. It's I just thought, anyways. Samuel I, S. Jackson is one of our yeah, finest actors. One of our finest actors. <laughs> I just want to say two things. Number one, that guy can never run for Congress. That's too bad. Um, <laughs> but But number two... This actually winds up being, especially on my my second viewing on the 405, this wound up being kind of my favorite part of the story because I'm more focused on the dialogue because I'm trying not to drive off the road. And what I <laughs> what I really picked up on was that they were the, the the first two freshmen that one of the you know the the the, the guy who dressed up as Samuel L. Jackson uh, <laughs> had had basically blackmailed his sister to get them invited to this party. And so this guy had kind of blown off this girl that he was into to go like it was. So it's, it is there's there's almost this like uh, super bad, like our one crazy right. night element to this going on where they show up to this party and this guy winds up being like the fucking hero. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he winds up with you see like the cool guy who's throwing the party like at the end, like high fives him and gives him a hug. It I actually really makes him cool. Element. Yeah. Yes. And it's such an unlikely and original story device. Like I can't, I can't think of ever seeing this kind of Pied Piper construction where, you know, at first it's just a couple of random people and eventually everyone is just, you know, cheering and totally involved in this and, and totally involved in, in his direct role in what they're watching. And I, yeah, I can't think of anything like it. And I find it, it's, it's really fun and, and, legitimately clever i just found myself being more involved in that aspect of it than than i was the first the the first two or three times i watched it i agree i agree and i, I thought his jeff travolta costume was great yes <laughs> <laughs> so uh we we get some more michael myers history from uh bill the i believe bill is the horn dog who's just always trying to get into jen's pants to be fair, Bill and Jim are both horn dogs. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, true. There's, there's really not a lot distinguishing them besides their costumes. In my notes, I got them confused about 30 times. So That's fair. I do want to point out very quickly that Luke Kirby plays Jim, uh, would go on to be, oh God, he's on The Marvelous Miss Maisel where he plays Lenny Bruce, and he's actually really oh, good on it. yeah. Yeah, so, I think that uh, actor has something. I haven't seen that show, but he definitely, when he's not trying to do what appears to be a again an impression of Heather's Christian Slater character. Yeah, it's it's a good show. The kills are amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
He's got about three good lines, maybe less. He's he's got. I'll give him three good lines in this, but otherwise, I think he's pretty terrible. But he comes into his own. Well, and again, his character by design is someone we're not supposed to sob, you know, uncontrollably when he dies. Yeah, because that's no fun. And but anyway, we we get a little bit of history about you know Judith and the and the and the bedroom as as Rich alluded to that like she's literally Jen is sort of reliving what Judith was doing and Michael is actually watching what Judith was doing right before he stabbed his sister all these years ago and it it, it is kind of cool. Bill gets her to sort of flash the camera. It's a fun scene. They really milk it. And again, Michael is watching the whole thing. So there's there's tension on several levels. Just to touch on that psychosexual aspect, that seems to trigger him a little bit, right? Yeah. Because he kills he, – he, it's not long after that that he kills Bill. I just found it interesting. They they tied that scene back to the nudity to Michael Myers watching it. And then you know we, we get sort of the, the, the first burst of violence comes very mm. quickly after that. I'm just saying, Michael Myers wants to fuck his sister. I don't understand why that's such a controversial thing. Okay, Mike. No, just (laughs) (laughs) I think there is a real tension that, you know, in this movie, we don't have any uncertainty about whether Michael Myers is actually in there with them. We're we're fully aware that all of these stalking scenes are, are legitimately him there. So even though the tone and the dramatic tenor of what we're seeing through this portion of the film is largely comedic. We know for a fact, the real Michael is there whereby, whereas in a lot of the earlier movies, there's a lot of ambiguity of, well, is Michael even there? And, you know, keeps turning out to be not Michael. And I think that, that I like that this movie's chosen to use the tension of, in the suspense of the audience, knowing he is right fucking there and he could kill any of them at any time. So, we get the critical studies uh, girl, Donna is her her name, and she's hanging out with Jim. And I actually, I, okay, Vic, I'll give it to you. The banter is not as, as sharp as that one line in the TV movie that we just had. But Donna asks if Jim's lines work with chicks in his major, and he says, yeah, and he lists a couple others too. And she goes, well, it doesn't cut it with critical studies. I thought it was funny, but not as funny as her next line when she says, besides, <laughs> screwing a music major would be tantamount to lesbianism. And he's like initially offended. And then he goes, I could get into that. <laughs> that can, works can for you me. Explain what that, can you explain what that line means? It, it went over my head. There's no masculinity. A music major is such a loser. You know, a guy yeah. that's not going yeah. anywhere. Like he, she might as well bang a check. Jesus. He's a sensitive artist, musician, loser who's not worth her time. And then he's like offended, but then like the inherent hotness of lesbianism, he's like, oh, yeah, I could go with that. So Jen screams and they go looking for her. And Michael Myers is there with uh, Rudy, we think. Or no, he is there, but he doesn't do anything yet. So it's a fake scare, but it's a real scare. And again, like I was criticizing the fake scares in the last movie so much. I think the fake scares in this movie generally are just, you know, varied enough and and quirky enough and have enough real stuff in it that I think they work. So there, Vic. It's a little it's a little different. There's a terrible one early on when Sarah looks in a mirror as she's like trying on clothes because Katie Sackoff wants her to show more skin. 
and she looks in a mirror and sees a reflection of Michael Myers behind her because it doesn't make any fucking sense. Like it makes yeah. sense when that happens to Laurie Strode. It doesn't make any sense when she does it. Oh yeah. But like Michael is stalking them in, at the costume shop. In exactly. Town. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's so that's sort of nonsense. And, and those are the things that it's like goosing you while they, they set up these terrible characters. So that I'm, I'm less forgiving of than I am with H2O. But once you're inside the house, Again, to to draw the parallel back to like the descent, once you're inside the cave, it's a lot easier for me to buy into it because there's more of a possibility that something's actually happening. I agree they work they work better here, and there are fewer of them. Again, there's there's eight compared to twelve, and four of them work compared to one or two in H two O. So. Yes, on the jump scare front, I will give uh, this movie the edge. Yeah, not having 35 bad fake scares is definitely a, a step in the right direction. <laughs> but we have a real scare when Bill is talking to a mirror, thinking there's a cam behind it, and Michael Myers just suddenly breaks through and grabs him, which nobody could see coming. There's there's another uh, uh, Candyman reference, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. However, Freddy and Nora do not see this either i mean they are paying very little attention to their their job at this point credibility is definitely stretched in this movie with how little the characters watching the damn monitors see on well the they'll fix it in post yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> right I, I do actually want to flag this scene really quick there's something about the the conversation between freddie and whatever Ty, uh, nora tyra mm-hmm. banks's character there's something about their conversation that really stood out to me that, again, made Buster Rhymes feel like one of the more developed characters, which is that he's talking to her about, like, the pride of – he, he, he uh, poses it as if the if they continue getting the success that, they're gonna, that they've had so far, that they're going to be able to put food on the table. There's this idea of their characters that they're – especially Freddie is really this – by the bootstraps sort of independent producer who is like put together this production and is like, it's a big gambit for him to become more successful. I don't know how he's making money. I can't see any sort of like paywall or ad sales (laughs) that's happening in there, but that's beside the point. There is this sense that like he actually has pride in this project that he's doing and like an investment in it where you sort of buy that, this is meaningful to him or that he's like constructed it, you know? And that that's kind of what I mean when I say, I feel like he's a good producer beyond just like his ability to convince people to do things that he wants them to do. The notion that they've set all this up and put their whole, their, you know, everything's on the line with this and yet have no idea how they're going to make money off of it really sums up the internet in 2002. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, like how many internet companies like yeah. went belly up on the idea of pour money into it. I'm sure we're going to be billionaires. We're going to stream content. I love yeah. it. Yeah. I also love like he says something it, it, like it's I can't decide if it's satirical and clever or just bad when he's like, as long as everything keeps going as smoothly as it is right now, <laughs> we're going to be super rich. And like literally someone's being murdered while he's saying that. I give it a little credit in that, like, there is sort of a tongue-in-cheek in so much of this movie. It definitely isn't guilty of taking itself too seriously, you know? Oh, sure, John. Way. You give this movie all the credit, don't you? Son of a bitch. You know, I, I do want to say for the record, Vic, I mean, I think that le- legitimately, like, pound for pound, 
if you're just grading by category of, you know, art direction and writing and score and acting and, you know, just a checklist or a scorecard, the last movie is objectively quote unquote better than this movie. <laughs> I will give you that. <laughs> quote unquote. It always makes it worse, John. That's okay. okay. I understand. But if you said, if you put a gun to my head and said, I'm sending you to a desert island with one of these two movies, I am picking this movie. <laughs> oh. oh. Sorry, that's on, that's on my side. I love it. Uh, baby related. Hold on one second. Of course. That sounds very baby related. I think, we should, I think we should keep that in. That sounds like a horror movie. I am keeping it in because that's yeah. basically from Evil Dead 2, I believe. Yeah. Baby, it's baby related. I think Henrietta is about to burst from the earthen floor of the root cellar. There you go. <laughs> well, I need another beer anyway. So, oh god, I do too, Last but one. I can't. I have to get up at five thirty. Oh, I'm sorry, Vic. Everything's good here. I'm just gonna run to the restroom real quick. Okay, great. All right, let's do it. All right, I'm back. Awesome. Me too. Last beer I- of the night. I fucked up, guys. I already opened my LaCroix. You <laughs> didn't open LaCroix Sorry. on mic? I, I didn't put it on the mic. Sorry. <laughs> it would have so- It would have sounded like a... Oh, God. I was going to say something really sexist, but let's just say... <laughs> I, think, uh, I, think, uh, I, think, I think I think that's it, John. I think we all got it. Now. Let's leave it. Let's o- leave opening, it. opening up a LaCroix on mic is tantamount to lesbianism. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Rich. <laughs> there you go. In any event, um, let's, just, let's just end the podcast there. I, I feel like that's probably the high point, right? Yeah, the LaCroix yeah. can being crushed in your manly palm. Mm. Absolutely. Oh, I just want to say that the kill on Bill here, it's Bill, right? Yeah. yeah. He gets stabbed in the head and the knife actually goes into his head. So, again, we haven't been seeing that in the last few of these movies. It, it's it's a more uh, Friday type of thing than than Halloween traditionally is in terms of explicit violence. The fact that Michael is in the walls and can punch through the mirror from the other side of the mirror is pretty bizarre and unexplained. But well, the only thought I had there was that it's a thin wall, which I don't know if that makes any sense, but. I mean, Michael's already gone through a door and made it look like plywood. Maybe he can go through drywall as if it were. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it's kind of ridiculous, let's face it. But you also have the theory that maybe there's um, there's passages in the walls, too. It's, so, it's implied, yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, uh, Tyra Banks' latte uh, looks really delicious as I'm mm-hmm. having the movie play in the background here. They really they make love to that latte with their camera work. Uh, but that was much earlier. Uh, at the point we're at, we're following Jim and Donna as they explore the semi-secret underground room under the basement. We're about 50 minutes into the running time. I do like that Donna is suddenly hot to trot. I mean, Jim has been the Lothario, as she calls him, up to this point, And suddenly um, he... Uh, he doesn't reject her, but he kind of blows her off to do something. And I, I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, a reversal, but they no, hope it, go ahead. John, wait. All right. Yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying here. I have so many questions about this fucking scene, right? Cause this <laughs> drives me nuts, right? This guy's a douchebag, like from top to bottom, he's just a douchebag. 
And then all of a sudden, she gets on board. And what I don't understand is she's like, well, there's definitely no cameras down here. And then she wants to fuck. And I'm like, I don't understand. You still have the cameras on you so everybody can see you fucking. We can see you. We oh, no, they ditched the those cameras. You. They ditched those cameras. Yes, they, they put they them right them, on the floor. They mm-hmm. set them on the ground in such a way that the cameras can still see what they're doing, right? We actually get the physical shot. So they're still being seen doing it. So she's not doing it for the publicity. I don't think. She, I don't certainly don't believe that she actually likes this guy. Like, this is the most lazily inserted <laughs> sex scene since Devil's Pass. Oh! So, <laughs> I, look, I, I love was, that sex I, scene in Devil's Pass. I'll have you know. I, I just, and look, like, I want to go on, I want to go record. I think Daisy McCracken is very attractive. And I was, you know, I was happy to see this scene take place, but. It was. It was just. It. It was ridiculous. It we was get ridiculous. real nudity here. Well, I mean, but... kinda. I. I. I have two. I have two. I have two <laughs> things of note here. One is that I. I point out to Vic when we watched it because this is where around where we got interrupted. Watch like they did. Sorry. It's a uh, yeah exactly. It's it's such it's such wasted nudity. Like you're you're gonna like break out like this is your one like sex scene of the entire film, and. It's like it's almost uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like it's visually like impenetrable. Like you can't really ever quite get a good look at her. Like nothing ever really happens. You get like, flashes all, of nipple. Yeah, it, it's all obscured by by cutting back and forth between video and film and and uh, a skeleton bursting through the wall, a fake skeleton bursting through the wall, or a body. What is it? What is it? What what comes through the wall? It's mostly a fake, fake skeleton. A fake skeleton. Yeah. Rich, I would say Marcus Nispel's career is turning over in its grave. Like, <laughs> that is that man knew how to provide slasher film uh, nudity in a clear and concise manner. Is his career really in the grave? Um, I guess so. But hang on, hang on, I'm going to Google it. You guys keep yeah. talking. By the way, I, the I, line I, that she drops um, when he says "say something smart" is "existence precedes essence." Yeah, I remember that from an episode of Who's the Boss. That's some lazy ass <laughs> shit. Oh my god. <laughs> it's true we only get um glimpses of nudity here, but um we do get fake decaying corpses dumping on them. Uh, if that is what you're into. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and she shouts I made a note that she shouts all his victims. <laughs> is what she is what she says when yeah. the when the bodies come through the wall. As though the story is is that he walled them up inside the drywall of his basement. All criticism is valid of this sequence. But um, (laughs) it is where we learn as an audience that this is all put on and staged. But I think I do even have another quibble in that we learn that when Freddie and Nora are cheering as they watch it on, on the monitors. And then we get Jim picking up the arm and he says, I can't believe this, made in Taiwan. And I feel like that would have been funny to have before the Freddie and uh, Nora reveal. If that's how we found out that this, they were fake. I just think that that would have played even better. Uh, Cause at first you're thinking, he says, I can't believe this cause it's, you know, messed up. And then you get the made in Taiwan. But I, I figured that that was because you couldn't really see the made in Taiwan logo. And, and, and so if you, if that's how they broke the news to us, we might not really understand what the hell he was talking about. So that's why they did it the other way. But it's it's funny, but it's not as funny as, as it could have been. That's what I'm saying. All right. 
Guys, I'm going to jump in and just say that Marcus uh, Nis- Nispel? Nispel? Anybody? I-, I would go with Nispel. Nispel? Yeah. Okay, so 2009, Friday the 13th, the high watermark for nudity in a slasher film, followed by Conan the Barbarian in 2011, and then something called Exeter in 2015, and nothing since. So, yes, his career is turning over to his grave. I blame the heroine. I don't know. Yeah, that's weird. I mean, because he, he definitely had some momentum there. Um, his, his Texas his Texas Chainsaw is, is nothing to quite sneeze at. But I, I actually like it quite a bit. And as you mentioned, there's definitely charms to the Friday remake. So he definitely seemed as capable as Rick Rosenthal of uh, having it. <laughs> there you go. But here's the best scene in the movie or, or, or right up there. We introduce the fake Michael Myers and immediately show the real Michael Myers following a few steps behind him. And you get this surreal surveillance camera view of two Michael Myers crossing one room, one at a time in the same frame. I just find that like in this, you know, surrealistic way, absolutely brilliant for sequel number eight or nine or wherever the fuck we are. I find it to be honestly what a lot of what it reminded me of was Scream. When Jamie Kennedy is watching, he's watching Halloween and he's yelling at her, no, don't do that. He's right behind you. You can't do that. And Ghostface is right behind him. It felt like that, like that same kind of meta Kevin Williamson feel. It's almost like Kevin Williamson had some good ideas that could be applicable to other films. But I know you don't believe that, John. <laughs> no, I don't. But I do believe that <laughs> and a, a weird coda to this whole um, season of our show might be to do Scream as the finale. Because Scream is basically built on this foundation. John, I think this is a great idea. I'm on board. Yeah. Because we can't go out on Halloween, too. I'm just saying. No. God, no. You're absolutely right. Freddy, as the fake Michael Myers, inevitably notices the real Michael Myers, but he thinks the real Michael Myers is another fake Michael Myers. This is genius, guys. This is fucking genius. (laughs) (laughs) He thinks it's Charlie the camera guy who died earlier, and he totally tears him a new one. He even taps Michael Myers in the head. He gives him a good thump on the noggin. And Michael Myers, he doesn't react. But again, that's what I love about this whole movie is that it's about Michael Myers being in unfathomable situations. And I find it very funny, but it doesn't really sacrifice the tension. They walk the tightrope. It doesn't turn into scary movie. You know, we're really expecting Michael Myers to just stab him. By the same token, we've seen him not do that in enough situations. And he seems so legitimately stunned. The, the body language acting is strong enough that, that I buy it when he just turns away on Freddy's laugh line. Can't get decent help up in this motherfucker. Sure. In a, in a weird way, this scene with Howard, like, makes you accept this scene. Like, like Michael Myers can look at context in social situations and say, yeah, this isn't the time. Yes. Yes. They've set that up uh, in this movie and in previous movies that it's not unfathomable. And uh, yeah, I think it's, it's pretty awesome. It's one of those moments that provides like a glimpse of Michael's psychology a little bit in the same way that the Howard scene did. Unfortunately, the glimpse that it gives us is of, of kind of a, I can't use any of the words I'm thinking of. It's it's one of those things that's amusing to me the uh, you know the first time but on subsequent sort of thought it doesn't hold up. I yeah, he should have he taps him on the forehead. <laughs> like you can't like that's Michael yeah, no. I the Michael Myers I know would have strangled him with a phone cord. 
Like he apparently it's, did to Nora, by the way. I saw yeah. that deleted scene. That's actually how she dies. It's not in the huh. actual movie. But. Well, that's a really valid point. I mean, the idea that he's this, as uh, I think Buster Rhymes even puts it later, he's like a great white shark. I think he says something like that at the end. Yeah. The TV camera. And, in a in baggy ass overall. Yes. <laughs> which I love. That feels improvised, right? Exactly. I mean, no, yeah, and it's yeah. perfect. It's wonderful. Yes. So I, I can see how you take issue with the very fact that Michael Myers would would play this scene in, in this way. I don't know why tonight I have to use his full name every time I mention him, but uh, I guess it's because we have all these generic names. I don't want anyone to get confused. Th- that's a legitimate gripe, Vic. But to me, again, this deep into a franchise, I'm so eager for something a little different. Uh, I, I find it fun. Meanwhile, who's also having well, then fun? Then you're gonna love the next scene. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah! At this time, Donna and uh, Jim are down in the basement, and they actually um, they're separated, I believe, because it's Donna alone who finds the animal bones on a plate and a mattress, and and this is the real lair. This is not Dangertainment. This is actually what Michael has been up to. There's a doll with nails in its eyes, a female doll, and there's the obligatory yellowed newspaper clipping. Yes, folks, it's true. Even Michael Myers has to clip (laughs) newspapers and put them up on his walls. Yeah. (laughs) And the the headline is Laurie Strode Survives Halloween Night Massacre. Here's a question. Is that – did he take the doll from Laurie Strode's room or is it a different doll? I have no idea. It looks like a a little girl. It's definitely a female doll. Um, I I thought know. It, I thought they were rag. It looks like a Raggedy Ann doll, and I thought it was the same one that we zoomed in on through her uh, through her room. But I could be mistaken. It looks smaller than that one, but yeah. it, it's creepy. And we get the blood and the flies and the half eaten rats and whatnot. I mean, it's a little cheesy. Like the whole yeah. like putting nail. Like the, doesn't that seem a little below? Michael Myers putting nails into a doll's eyes. Well, I think, you know, taping up a yellowed newspaper clipping is blowing too. (laughs) (laughs) This is ridiculous in that, like, we're we're trying to bridge the gap from the phony baloney Freddy stuff to what Michael has actually been up to. And other than this kind of semi-effective actual, you know, this animatronic rat or whatever. Which doesn't make any goddamn sense. No. (laughs) It's a half-eaten rat, and when they when they poke it, it turns out it's still alive. Right, right. Yeah. John, you wanted an answer, and you got one, and it still sucks. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but we do get a locked gate that uh, Donna can't get out of when Michael comes after her very slowly, of course. And he impales her on a bent, broken bar. Her camera goes static on a grate above with light shining through it and someone at the party watching it goes, that was so fake. This is the moment when I had this, I had this flash that Rosenthal using the cameras to cut between in order to, to sort of describe the action visually, all of a sudden reminded me of the way that he used the security cameras in the hospital in two, that this felt like an extension of him using the, the in-scene cameras uh, to sort of draw the picture visually. And I sort of appreciated that connection. I don't remember that well, but I, I know that you're you're right. And I'm sure that's not um, a coincidence. It works reasonably well here because there is a verisimilitude to it. And I do think that the 
there are a bunch of the video shots of Michael that I think are awesome throughout this movie, kind of just randomly here and there where you just see Michael kind of like coming towards us in this, you know, grainy half light in this dark, muddy, lots of noise uh, image, you know, this frame. And I, I think it's actually, he looks badass a lot in this movie. Like, okay, that's another point to make. We always talk about the Michael in this movie and we've touched on him, you know, from a mental perspective, but I just think like how he looks and moves in this movie is great. And I think he actually is cooler and scarier in terms of, you know, individual shots and how he's kind of captured here than he has been, I mean, in several movies. There's a couple scenes of him after he murders someone where he's sort of looking into those cameras and you get this picture and then they sort of cut back to the, the, kids at the college kids at the party sort of watching or whatever, but it's those moments of him looking into the camera really are a little disconcerting. There's a version of this movie. I just looked it up. A paranormal activity wasn't until 2007. Now, of course this is after Blair, Witch. there's a version of this movie that could just be a found footage movie. Even the watching it, rich watching with you. I had the sense that this felt like a precursor to found footage. Uh, not that I'm suggesting people sort of drew on this, but this seems like something that, showed the way to how you could tell a story just with those cameras, because there's a this long stretch of this movie where they don't need the, the sort of omniscient camera that they have. Yeah, I agree with that. It's sort of novel in that, you know, we didn't do a whole lot of cameras strapped to people technologically up to this point, you know, like the, the lipstick camera uh, perspective. I don't think it was used as heavily as this movie. Well, and this this felt like too much of an aside, but uh, even in the audition scene, for some reason, uh, it, it struck me as being evocative of aliens. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, like, there, Aliens was one of the first movies to really incorporate that idea of the perspective and the people, you know, watching those perspectives on monitors that I can think of. Um, it's just this movie manages to not really totally feel like a ripoff of Aliens or Blair Witch or anything specifically. I don't think they were. I just think that there was something floating around in the culture that wouldn't get picked up on for a few more years. But I think that this movie picked up on a little bit of it, that all of a sudden there are cameras everywhere and maybe that's a way to tell a story. And here they use it just as a, you know, a, to, to help tell the story as opposed to something upon which to lean entirely. When you're watching it, you're so struck by, oh, I'm familiar with this language that they're using, and it's because I've seen 500 found footage films, but none of them were made until, you know, five, six, seven years after this. Also, if any of our listeners are getting ready to go on a long road trip and have four or five hours to kill, you should go back and listen to our Aliens podcast because it's, it's long. Oh, yeah. Long, and it goes deep. So now that... Bill doesn't get to go deep into Donna. <laughs> <laughs> that, he, uh, folks, that's a professional segue right there. <laughs> he's unbeknownst to her demise. Um, and meanwhile, Jen and Rudy are off together uh, individually uh, getting high. And Sarah is alone and she's reading into Michael Myers type stuff. And either this is the real Michael Myers or, or it's Freddie. But shortly we see... The, the Freddy version of Michael Myers 
Like, is it intentional that he's named Freddy, Freddy, Michael, Jason? I don't know. Probably not. He he confesses to uh, what he's up to after Jim suddenly saves uh, Sarah from him. Uh, again, this is the fake Michael Myers. And they have kind of a heart-to-heart off camera, and Freddy tells them that if they play along with his little ruse, his little uh, charade, the back end should be robust. From all those advertising dollars, they're raking in off of nothing. Yeah, it's so obvious how they monetize this whole thing, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Jen is not around for that. And almost instantly after this, this conversation, things escalate very rapidly because Jen finds Bill's body in the attic and the real Michael immediately confronts her at the top of the stairs. She's paralyzed with fear and he decapitates her with one stroke of his chef's knife. I guess it's a Ginsu. I don't know. It must be a hell of a blade because uh, one little stroke, her head tumbles down the stairs into the frame of one of the cameras, vacant eyes staring. And honestly, I think the effect is pretty good. I I didn't think dummy head at any point during this sequence. I think it's more about the upper body strength than it is the sharpness of the knife. I think it gets back to the pull-ups that he's clearly been doing. I just want to say, I the idea of any of this happening to me after taking a bunch of bong hits is my worst fucking nightmare. <laughs> oh hell yeah. I mean the, yeah. the the paranoia that I have over um a knock on the door let alone exactly. an actual killer. Yeah, my phone rings, I lose my shit. Like <laughs> let me let somebody's head roll down the fucking stairs and see how I react. But I I was wondering cuz it the sequence wasn't quite as disturbing as as it sounds or as it, you know, should be and I knew there was something off and I watched it like a couple of times and then I realized there's no blood and that's the problem. Her head should be bleeding at least to some extent as it comes down the stairs and falls there. There's like no blood coming out. I was also, I was distracted in this particular moment by, I think that there, Michael has like a fast travel moment in here where he's seen downstairs shortly before this and then suddenly reappears at the top of the stairs attacking Jen. I think that might be Freddy at the bottom of the stairs, but it's also hard to keep track of at this point. Well, yeah, they're having a lot of fun with which one of them is real. Freddy had just scampered off though. I don't think we see him again. I think it's, it's plausible that Michael was just upstairs. Uh, I see. The kid's reaction to the head's, isn't fantastic. And then Michael immediately catches up with them. Jim tries to fight him off with a a, a camera tripod, which is only effective in the right hands, apparently, because he seems dazed and mesmerized by the knife when Michael tangles with him. Michael decides to stab that knife into the wall for safekeeping, further confusing Jim. And then he just grabs his head with both hands. And uh, we have a grisly but not gory kill as Michael crushes his skull, which is a very rough way to go. So two down in very short order here. Seeing all this at the party, Deckard calls 911. We get some cool grainy POV shots of Michael menacing Rudy, who tries to lure him away from Sarah, and she kind of barricades herself. And now we have this kind of comic sequence where Rudy tells Michael to try a little less protein in his diet to control that aggression. (laughs) Yeah, He uses a blinding combo of spices to delay Michael. Again, for me, this was funny. It doesn't quite breach the line into uh, something that is uh, absurd to the point of I can no longer take this seriously. I Uh, liked it. 
because I liked Rudy's character, but I also just know, I mean, this is just how characters get dispatched at this part of a, of a Halloween movie. Yeah. Well, he's pretty good with his carving knives. I mean, he does get himself cornered and Michael takes him away and stabs him with the knives and pins him to the door. We get the head tilt, the classic Michael head tilt, but it's in a grainy camera POV shot, which is, which is different. Michael adds a third knife and then we see him open the door from a different camera perspective with Rudy hanging from it dead. And then Michael casually leaves the kitchen. Oh, and then we get the line, uh, which is, again, I think they make good use of the teens commenting on this shit from the party. Uh, as Sarah's freaking out at this, one of the teens goes, she really is a very talented actress, which I actually got a legitimate <laughs> laugh out of. <laughs> so Deckard starts using the cams to warn Sarah with these kind of antiquated looking all caps text messages. He's coming up the stairs. Now the teens finally are on board. They believe what's going on. I don't know what Freddie's doing at this point, but uh, Sarah goes out the window. She's on the roof and there's some cat and mouse there. There's a moment where once you get into the hole where Deckard is, is texting Sarah and she crawls outside of the house, which I guess part of it maybe is that just that she leaves the house. She gets up on the roof. You're a little disoriented in terms of like the space that you're dealing with, but you're literally in this, uh, this sort of game where she's blindfolded in terms of like not knowing where Michael is. He's sending her these text messages that are guiding her movements. Um, it, it, it more feels like something that's like a, a, the plot of a, of a thriller um, more so than a horror movie. And it, it ultimately proves to be ineffective if I, if memory serves me correctly, right? She just kind of like, and she ends up getting back into the house somehow, which doesn't seem like a good move. His well, messages aren't terribly helpful. <laughs> it's it's all very dramatic, but not not particularly helpful. It's yeah, a, lot a lot of, of he's coming like up he's, the stairs. He's in his old yeah. bedroom. Yeah, yeah. Go now. It's, it's, it's Morpheus guiding uh, Neo in the Matrix, right? Yeah, yeah. Yep. And also, I, I just want to say is because we've returned back to this suburban area, and now we're sort of trapped in this house for the whole movie. We've already been on the roof in Halloween four. Like we've seen most of this scene play out before. Well, the only fresh part again is that she has this eye in the sky walking her through it, which is, you know, yeah. obviously unprecedented in a horror film. I think it, it gives some freshness to the sequence. It does. It just does. It just doesn't, unfortunately doesn't pay off in any real way, except that you get this, you finally get a, a moment of actual interaction between these two characters, but they don't really use it to accomplish anything. Well, that's the real problem with the movie is that there isn't a great degree of true cleverness to any of these dynamics here. You know, like if they somehow had some really visceral and cool survival horror, you know, win and loss and reversal where she's she's getting hurt, but she's giving it back. And, you know, she has to be really resourceful to survive something. It's all pretty standard issue with text messages in the middle of it. So that's that's really the, the downfall of the whole sequence. But I do give him credit for, you know, having this novel conceit of somebody texting you as to the whereabouts of the, of the slasher killer in the next room. Uh, we haven't mm -hmm. seen that before, so that is cool. Nor have we seen uh, Freddy, the kung fu enthusiast, square off with Michael Myers, but <laughs> that happens. <laughs> he even <laughs> makes chop sake sounds. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he lands a roundhouse kick and Sarah helps some. And Freddie's doing his kung fu stuff and Michael gives him the head tilt. And look, we've seen that held head tilt 300 times and a good five or six times in this movie. But I think it is a novel use of the head <laughs> tilt when it's a true what the fuck head tilt. Yeah. <laughs> He's just like, who are you and what uh, are you doing? Like, what am I dealing with? Maybe off the sit, that same look, I, I made a note here about the fact that even Michael Myers seems to be a little confused about what is he doing in this movie at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Again, having not freshly watched the rest of the series, like his motivation in this film is really the weakest that I can, that I can think of. Like there's no real connection to anything that's going on here with the exception of the fact that like they're just in his house and it's annoying him. Well, yeah, I mean, there's no Laurie. I mean, his motivations are, He's adrift in life at this point. That's I, true. I, he he could just hang out in his little basement room and eat rats and probably have been okay. Like he could have just mm-hmm. ignored all this. There's a lot of inevitable late franchise fatigue at this point. Yeah. And this movie is essentially doomed. The only thing it can do is try to be interesting and fresh and novel in some way. But, I mean, there's just so much... It's a mimeograph of a Xerox of a of a of a sketch, a pencil sketch at this point. Like we're we're playing telephone with this franchise now. And at least they bring some ingenuity on a conceptual level, if not in execution. Yeah. So he goes out the window and he he should be dead, but then Deckard texts, He's still alive. And he's immediately behind them instantly. You know, he's using yeah. Jason's teleportation. Because because Decker gives the enormously helpful text, he's in the house. <laughs> Not like he's behind you or he's in the living room or he's in the foyer. Like, no, he's just he's somewhere in the house. And at that point, Michael stabs Freddie and he looks dead, maybe, even though it was in the shoulder area. And Michael starts chasing Sarah again. And the iconic theme is playing. And then we kind of go through the motions of the traditional beat of the heroine finding the bodies of his various victims throughout the movie. But we've seen them all, mostly. So it kind of lacks impact. And her reaction to them isn't that valuable or important either. Uh, But again, in in Michael's portrayal in this whole thing, we get a really nice blend of that grainy cam and more traditional cinematic shots of him being menacing. And I think it's all pretty effective uh she does find sarah does find nora who we haven't seen uh so there's one body that's a surprise to us it's kind of disappointing to me though that nothing he does shows the same machiavellian cleverness that i thought we were going to get out of this incarnation of him it's pretty standard stuff you know he'll present corpses and surprising places he'll move them around but there's really nothing clever about it. <laughs> you, you've become so jaded. <laughs> I know. It's true. But I really, my hopes got up that this would be a, a new level of Michael. And, and it's not. And in Michael's defense, Sarah's not really worth it. That's true. I mean, like she's, she's not inspiring him. Buster Rhymes should be inspiring him, but he just doesn't know what to do with him. The that's, one thing I'll that's say. That's true. Buster Rhymes is confusing him. He's not inspiring him. <laughs> he does manage to put multiple victims with their mug right in the camera. I guess that's kind of cool because the wall of monitors is yeah. all victims' faces. 
And then she does get a chainsaw, which you would think would be awesome, but kind of isn't. Um, bad dialogue. Has, wait, wait. Oh, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Sorry. I was just going to say, she goes, this is for Jen. Oh, God. Well, no, that's there's something great about that where she goes, this is for Jen and this is for Rudy. And this is for everybody else. (laughs) (laughs) That camera guy I never met. And the, you know, yeah. But that, I guess that is supposed to be her badass moment. Right. So now, now she's uh, not afraid anymore and she causes a fire and Michael gets uh, electrocuted and there's blazing fire in this garage where all this is going down. And, and Michael sits up, he does his classic sit up in the background trick Gotta have that call back. Um, and he's gonna menace her, but guess who breaks down the door? Genuinely surprising Michael. It's Freddy. And he drops the most immortal line in the history of the franchise. Trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's actually great. Oh yeah. Oh it yeah. really is. It, it's 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 especially great because it's something that on paper really shouldn't work and should be the thing that you were rolling your eyes at more than anything else in the entire movie. And again, because of his conviction to the delivery, (laughs) Buster Rhymes actually makes it somehow the most memorable thing about the entire movie or any of the more recent movies. He sells it hard. (laughs) He sells it hard. He means it. No matter how many times I've seen this movie, I still want to say happy Halloween motherfucker, which I literally texted to the two of you. Uh, like three hours before this podcast, uh, he, even he, though I had just seen it. He does, in fairness, I think at the end, I think at the very end, he does walk out of the garage and say, happy Halloween. Oh, yeah. He does. He says, and, and Michael, happy Halloween. But it's one of those things, it's like it's like play it again, Sam. You know uh-huh. what I mean? Where where it's, you, you, my, your mind just conflates it into a line of dialogue that doesn't actually exist. It's really, it's exactly like Casablanca. <laughs> just like that absolutely i mean i think this movie one of its closest analogs is cast really yeah the, the, yeah the best parallel so no i yeah. mean he he has not one but two uh immortal one-liners here because uh the one that you're referring to is in in a couple minutes he goes hey mikey happy fucking halloween long story short michael kind of appears to lose and burn up and the cops show up and uh, whoa, 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 whoa! Wait, mm-hmm. wait a minute. The the way that he ends up burning up is that is that Buster Rhyme uh, shocks him in the dick with a with a live wire. <laughs> yeah, that should be noted. Yes, yes. He gives him as um, that that uh, Kill Count show put it. Gives him jewels to the jewels. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's not bad. Yeah, uh, credit well, where credit is due. Rich, I want to put out from a production perspective that I. I have literally seen Michael Myers knock out the power to the entire town of Haddonfield by just tossing a, a some poor electrical worker into, you know, the transformers at a power station. Bucky. Yet, some, yet somehow. Wow. Good call, John. Uh, <laughs> yet somehow it never occurs to him to cut the Jenny <laughs> to this one fucking house. There's even a shot of the generator like early on where I was like, oh, it's just this tiny fucking generator <laughs> powering all of this and it winds up killing him. If Michael's rela- relationship to electricity is confusing to me. Well, again, it's it's his house, so 
he doesn't want to knock out the power to his own house. Is that his generator then? Uh, I guess <laughs> he doesn't want to miss his stories. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's it. Yeah, he, he yeah, watches I, I just, uh, soap operas all day. Well, it's, I just I from like a production standpoint, you spend so much time like focused on the generator, making sure you have the generator. It's going to be too loud. It's going to fuck up the sound. The generator's got to be far away. You do all the shit. I would right? love to see like uh, the on-screen text go March thirteenth, two p.m. And it's just Michael on the couch watching Sally, Jesse, Raphael at, at <laughs> two o'clock. Jesus, John, Sally, Jesse, Raphael. That's a deep cut. Well, we're talking about the, you know, this is period, man. I mean, this, yeah. is, uh, this is back in the day. I think you'd be watching Jenny Jones, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah Ricky, Ricky Lake, maybe. Sally would have been the 80s. So anything else? Like, I, I just think the whole, like, the actual resolution with the fire and the electricity is so absurd. I, I don't have anything to say about it, but... The cops show up. She thanks Deckard live on the local news, which I think is wonderfully silly. And everyone cheers at the teen party. And they wheel Michael Myers' corpse over. Sarah just strolls up and the fireman's like, sure, I'll, I'll unzip the body bag. <laughs> <laughs> you can take a look. <laughs> you guys want to taunt the charred corpse? Go for it. Because <laughs> Freddy comes it's, over. It's not, it's not evidence or anything. Like, you know. <laughs> And, you know, they shot apparently because they were worried, even in 2002, about leaks and, and whatnot. So they shot multiple variations of the ending, apparently even in one which I haven't seen, Freddy Dies. But I've seen little clips of, like, one where Deckard actually shows up and carries, fireman carries Sarah out of the burning building. I've seen one which they call the CSI ending, where investigators, uh, after the fact, get murdered by um, Michael when they open, you know, the door to his little hidey hole, his spider hole. Uh, and apparently he's alive uh, under the ground. There's one where uh, Michael reanimates on, on the uh, gurney when Sarah and Freddie are taunting him and he starts choking Freddie and Sarah has to put a fire ax in his head. Uh, well, in this version, in the theatrical version, uh, the corpse does not reanimate uh, because he's being insulted uh, he, he he decides to wait until the medical examiner at the morgue unzips the bag, and uh, that's when his eyes open. But I do like in any of these versions when we see his melted kind of greenish mask uh, sort of fusing to his face. I, I did find it pretty disturbing. I thought it was a kind of a cool little effect. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, I find it interesting that they had to go clue with the ending to to sort of not get anyone to spoil that Michael Myers is still alive, you know, eight movies in, that doesn't seem like much of a spoiler. Um, and I also like, I just, it's like after watching how many slasher films, a medical examiner by themselves with the quote unquote dead body of a serial killer. Like it's, you know, I don't know. That's the, that's like the least surprising version of it. I will say what I liked more than all of that was Buster Rhymes little the bit where he's talking to the camera and it seems like he he actually has a character arc where he's like this isn't entertainment turn off the cameras like show some respect this isn't you know this isn't what this is about shoving the camera guy out at the at the end that felt like a real performance that felt like a character that had actually moved been moved somewhat by the activity you know the 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 goings on of the of the film uh, unlike Sarah who you know just seemed like the same so 
I, I, I don't know. I, I thought that was the that was sort of the standout of it. I could care less about the medical examiner about to be murdered. Yeah, it really was the end of this movie. I mean, he was just the, the heart and soul of this thing. If it had a heart or a soul and well, new kung fu. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my my reaction to that is I don't know if I'd call it an arc because I don't believe he changed his mind about anything. I think that when everything was fake, he had one view of it. And then when it became real, he had a reasonable human reaction, which is, oh, shit, this is this is not, you know, this isn't my game anymore. This isn't me putting on a show for for the audience. And of course, he he would have a a different view of it because he's not he's not the like in the previous Halloween movie with the shock jock guy, like this guy's not soulless. He's just a showman, you know? And now that it's not a show anymore, he's reevaluated his relationship with it. And he has some sympathy for her. Donna, I'm sorry. There's a genuine human reaction. That's a, that's a, that's a a proud moment in the history of this franchise. (laughs) And I think we should celebrate it. Yeah. Yeah. This movie is so funny because like on the one hand it, it, it can be so ham handed, but on another, like so much of it works on some level. So I have a, I have a question for you guys, which is after, I mean, if you think about it, this is the end of a, what a four episode arc, right? This is, mm-hmm. this is Halloween one, Halloween two. Then you skip over a bunch, you get to H2O and then this one. And then this is essentially the end of this particular storyline and now it's going to get rebooted two more times by someone else. So how do you guys feel looking at that arc of those four films? How is this as an ending place that despite him waking up at the end with the medical examiner will never actually come to fruition? Rich, I I feel like this is our podcast and we should ask you the fucking questions. (laughs) I was about to say, (laughs) <laughs> Damn, I, I might be out of a job. What I would say is that when when Lori gets killed 15 minutes in, that feels like a satisfying resolution, and this all feels like the after credit sequence. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Part of what both the cleverness and the sort of absurdity of this movie bump up against is just that, as you just kind of said, with the medical examiner and the eyes opening, I mean, it's become a joke. Like, how can we keep doing this? Like, how could you just make another movie with Michael, like getting up in, at the hot, at the at the morgue and, and, and you know, going out there again? It It's impossible. Like this almost had to end it because it's it's just become a punchline of the same joke with just, you know, different variations. This is the movie that tries to reinvent it, but it really can't give it any firm ground. It's not a resurrection. It, it really is kind of a rehash. And I think that's why people hate it to the degree that they do in that, like they do some new things, but this is the movie that really proved we've we're in a dead end. Like the series, the franchise is in a cul-de-sac right now. And I, I totally understand why they felt the need to reboot it and start over at this point, because the, the franchise fatigue is so heavy and so palpable. You think they kicked around Halloween cul-de-sac as a as a potential title? <laughs> Originally uh, this was called Halloween Homecoming, which is somewhat in the in the vein. It also fits. 
I agree. Look, you can you can only run this so far. I mean, I would just say, look, again, especially having done this, when I talked about the way that these films fit together, I mean, obviously the first one sort of stands on its own in a way that none of the other films can. If you look at one and two as a part, at four and five as a part, at seven and eight as a part, those are all good parts. Those are all movies that I enjoy, that stand on their own. They have their own tonal qualities. They have their own story elements that are sort of individual to them and they work. And even this, again, it's like, look, like it's this and, and H2O, they are of their time. Uh, I think in some very specific ways in ways that I think maybe the first two are the four and five are, are, you know, they're, they're sort of bland in a, in a eighties generic way. There's not a lot of references to the Osbournes and that kind of shit in them, but they're all good movies. And then you have these, these, weird offshoots and nadirs and there's you know what i mean this kind of weird shit going on i'd be really curious to see how the zombie films feel through that lens but that's why this franchise sort of holds up in a way that even the friday the 13th movies don't these are these are good movies this is a good movie it's entertaining it's funny it has some interesting elements it's a it's a weird precursor to to sort of the found footage movement that would really get mm-hmm. kicked off by paranormal five years later it is of its time in the way that it talks about the internet and reality television and people trying to use that as a as a platform to become stars and it has buster rhymes doing kung fu like take take my money you know kind of this is the the bridge to i mean this is the most this is a uh, the first modern halloween film i think you know like this is a recognizable paradigm of our our culture more as it is now versus what it was in 1978 and i I think it's admirable in that way and and that is something that i don't think friday the 13th had as much room to explore because i I think that other than like the remake like uh, so many of those films are, are more stuck in amber and at least this movie, it does update it and, and resurrect it in a way that is recognizable culturally. I'm just interested to watch the zombie movies right now because um, I, I, I was pretty damn impressed with the first one at the time. So I can't wait to see how, how it plays to me now. Because I, I remember being deeply disturbed by the, the first kill, Michael's first kill of a bully in that film. So it just it it definitely has a, a, a the sickening power that that so many Rob Zombie films do to just grab you in the guts. So I'm 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 looking forward to that. At the end of the day, like I I feel like the the the, the black marks against this film are are the fact that while you can say it's predictive of the future, there's also a, a tiny bit of it that feels like it's just kind of like regurgitating the pop culture of its day, which is still something that was kind of left over at the at the end of the 90s where we had to like talk about pop culture and sort of like let you know that we were in on the joke mm. it has remnants of it but I, I think you're right in the fact that like it's a great example of a film that put the you know proverbial nail in the coffin and that they were aware that they didn't have anywhere new to go with the story at this point like i said like he had no motivation anymore with laurie gone and so at that point, it's like, why try to prolong that tale versus let's start over again at the beginning and explore what made this interesting in the first place 
and what are the interesting facets that maybe we missed? My final thought is just like based on the first 15 minutes of this movie, I really was hoping we would get like a more insidious Michael, uh, a more uh, the devil playing chess Michael. And I still kind of am sad that this movie didn't deliver on that. Maybe in some way we'll see that in the future. Who knows? And maybe David Gordon Green will put Buster Rhymes in the next one. <laughs> God if you're willing. listening, get on it, man. And some Kung Fu, please. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Vic, unless you have any other thoughts, we'll, we'll sign off there. I just want to say, Rich, this was fantastic, man. I really enjoyed having you on. Thank you for doing this. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks again for having me on. Uh, I'd be happy to do it anytime. Beautiful. Well, you might, yeah, man. we would love to have you back. Uh, it's been, this has been one of our best podcasts in a long time. So thanks buddy. And, uh, hope you all have enjoyed it. We'll be back hopefully before too long. Fingers crossed. <laughs> See you in December, everybody. <laughs> Trick or treat, motherfucker. <laughs> nice. All right. All right. Bye, thanks guys. guys. Good night. Bye.